That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Over the years of doing this radio show, one of the things that has become a constant is conversations about the entities, the leagues, the teams, the conferences, the schools, the athletes that that we cover and that you watch on television, listen to on the radio, follow on social media. Is what's good for the individual athlete necessarily good for the league Patrick Mahomes on the big stage during the Super Bowl comes away with a big victory makes the plays at the end of the game a nice moment for the Chiefs a nice moment for Patrick Mahomes frankly a nice moment for the NFL in its own way as we see the television audience for the CBS and Paramount broadcast Second to the lunar landing, you know, record-breaking. First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! And this was the Andy Reid special. This was the Andy Reid special. We talked about he was saving all day. He's going to fake a motion to go across. And at that moment, he turns and goes back. Hartman, who they didn't have, right? Good for the NFL, right? And it's good for the NFL in the aftermath. People are already talking about next year. 49ers the favorites on the on the betting board. Is that good for the league? Yeah, it's good for the league. There's enthusiasm, there's interest, there's profile. The NBA for years got credit because the athletes were accessible, they were visible. We were told that the NBA athletes were more popular because David Stern's league let us see their faces, let us hear their words, uh, let us get to know them a little bit. Uh, they did a nice job marketing their star players. Even the officials in the league will tell you there was a star treatment for star players. A lot of that centers around the idea that those star players bring viewers, bring audience, uh, they bring you and I to the games. The NFL has captured some of that. Certainly, I think uh, athletes like Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, the Taylor Swift halo effect, all of that helping with the ratings boost that CBS enjoyed for the game. But what happens when it goes wrong? What happens when there's drama going on between players in the league? Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic uh, more recently, in the last few days, have mixed it up on social media, mixed it up on the court the other night, as Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic uh, met again in part two of uh, an ongoing drama that the Warriors ended up walking away with a victory in the game but the subsequent chirping has now become a big storyline. Draymond Green, Yusuf Nurkic, chirping back and forth at each other. You may remember that Yusuf Nurkic 
in the wake of uh, the other night's game, basically said he takes back uh, everything that uh, that he uh, you know said nice about Draymond Green. The guy didn't learn anything from that experience. I mean, he said he didn't learn anything, man. It's just a matter of time. You're going to knock somebody else again. So take everything back what I said. You, know, you don't deserve a chance. So that's, that's it for me. When you, when you say that, I mean, what do you feel like he was doing tonight that just that told you that, that nothing has changed? Just antics. Try to hit people with the stuff he shouldn't do. Yusuf Nurkic saying that Draymond Green hasn't changed at all. Now Draymond Green firing back on his own show, the Draymond Green Show on YouTube, basically going at Yusuf Nurkic. Well, I'll let you hear it. The little guy then goes, like I said, went into the media complaining. Like, I did something to him as if he didn't do the too small celebration. And then he starts to question my character. What a coward. You go questioning character about a basketball game that you just lost, that you got destroyed. And the only thing you should talk about is how you got punished. 15-9-7. Um, and you finish with a measly 6-6-4. Six, six, and four. And then you go to the media and cry like that. I, I I must say, not very surprised that he went to the media and said what he said because that's the same guy that laid out on the floor uh, when I made contact. Bro, you 300 pounds. Get up off the floor, bro. If he actually didn't lay out on the floor like that, I actually don't get the suspension that I got probably. But dude laid out like he was dead. That same guy then goes and say he doesn't deserve another chance. How, bro? What an embarrassment. And they expect to win with that guy. Now, the NBA uh, is uh, going to have its all-star weekend. They're going to have the three-point shooting contest featuring Sabrina Ionescu against Steph Curry, first of its kind. There'll be a skills competition. There'll be a game. There'll be a lot of viewership, jerseys sold, a lot of hoopla, a lot of hype, uh, honoring the best players in the league. Man, can I get a one-on-one contest as part of all-star weekend featuring Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic? And who would you take in that, by the way? Uh, I think uh, I think it, it would be highly entertaining. I think it would be a lot of fun. But uh, I, I step back from that, and I wonder, is what's going on with Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic good for the game? In the same way that Roger Goodell's league sort of celebrates the idea that uh, great players, great performances elevate the NFL into becoming the world's most powerful, most viewed, most valuable sporting league. Is the NBA losing its way one diss at a time with athletes like Draymond Green tearing down other athletes, Yusuf Nurkic biting back, um, barking back? The league seemingly has, uh, not just with Draymond Green, but with other players, the thinnest skin superstars and star players anywhere in sports, and the clapping back and forth at each other. I'm just kind of wondering, is this any of this good for the game? Is it good for the Warriors? Is it good for the game? Is it good for Yusuf Nurkic? Is it good for the NBA's brand? I don't. I don't necessarily see it that way. I think it's terrible when you are when you are tearing down, uh, you know, the fabric of the league internally. And I'm tired of not just Draymond Green, but I'm kind of tired of the clapping back and the thin skinned and rabbit ears, and it just sort of smacks of a lack of confidence. And it goes both ways in this spat, like Yusuf Nurkic. Uh, does outweigh Draymond Green by 60 to 80 pounds, six inches taller, bigger guy. Um, exert your will on the court, 
And Blazer fans are shaking their head as I say that because they know they saw Yusuf Nurkic uh, fail to do that in his time in Portland. And meanwhile, Draymond Green, like, you know, almost looking over at Yusuf Nurkic and trying to diss him by saying, you know, it's an embarrassment. They're not getting anything out of him. I'm looking at Draymond Green's contributions to the Warriors this season and seeing a a guy who is kind of along for the ride and in, in the way in a lot of respects um, you know, in a moment, yeah, I, you know, he, he can be part of a team that can win games, but I no longer believe in the mystique and aura of Draymond Green's presence on the Warriors. He looks and feels and appears more like a distraction at this point. I want to know what you think. Is any of this good for the league? Because the UFC and Dana White will tell you that, you know, the whole reason they do the weigh-ins and they have the fighters glaring at each other and Conor McGregor, you know, uh, barking at another UFC fighter, and they're back and forth. They create sort of this false drama that helps sell pay-per-view subscriptions to the fight events, to the UFC events. Um, the NBA doesn't need that. The NBA's got a TV contract. I think what we have here is just a league that is filled with insecure players who have been told how great they are for most of their lives, clapping at each other and, and, and seemingly looking for disrespect, finding disrespect, and dishing disrespect back and forth. 503-417-7575 is a phone number. I want you to tell me, is this good for the game? Steven, Draymond Green, Yusuf Nurkic, whose side are you on? I want to say neither because I don't like either of these guys, but I would say in this little tizzy, uh, in round two, I'd be on Draymond's side. Now, the first round I was on Nurk's side when he gets punched in the face, uncalled for like Draymond did that on purpose and he did not deserve to get punched in the face now with this talk after the game that they just played um, a couple days ago and Nurkic coming out to the media saying you know he, he he takes back everything he said I'm on I'm on Draymond's side on this like Draymond did beast him in that game he outplayed Nurk in that game and he even talks about like he was pushing him around he pushes Nurk around and we've seen that in Portland Nurk gets pushed around and doesn't get to his spot and then he misses his shots and then he shoots under 50% and we're like well you're 7 feet tall how are you not shooting under 50% like that's what happens to Yusuf Nurkic and that's what happened to him against the Warriors and Draymond punked him in that game and so I for Nurk to come out and then just say that and after the media and, and say you know what he doesn't deserve anything it, it screamed of me of him just embarrassed of how he played now I don't respect everything that Draymond does. I don't like Draymond Green. I think he's awesome. I think he's a Hall of Fame player, but I really just don't like him on the court. I really don't like him off the court. And to act for it's for Draymond to act like he's never done anything, like he acts like Nurk is attacking his character. Well, yeah, we attack your character because you're the guy that's been kicking people in the nuts for seven years. Like I, I think both people are wrong in this situation. But if I have to choose a team right now, I'm on Team Draymond. Like Nurk just acted like he. He acted like a punk because he got punked on the court, and so he went and cried to the media and tried to you know, change the whole narrative around the entire game and how he didn't play well, and he tried to change it to Draymond's a bad guy. Is it good for the game? I don't think it's good for the game. Like, I am big on brand, and I think it's really important. Like, let's just look at one of the most battered brands that we have in our sports uh, ecosystem. The Trailblazers brand, it's battered. They're not good on the court. They have endured uh, years and years and years where they have struggled and fought against sort of their own internal limitations. Uh, the coach is probably not ready and not qualified to coach a team that would be competing deep in the playoffs. He's too early in his career. He wasn't ready for the job. The general manager is somebody who has uh, essentially been stuck into this position after they you know, flushed the system of the old GM that nobody liked, and they stuck Joe Cronin in the position where he's answering phones and he's 
listening to trade demands and he's helping run the scouting operation, but he's not really the de facto general manager. Burt Cold and Jody Allen are going to make all those decisions. And oh yeah, let's get to Burt Cold and Jody Allen. They're not they're not really ownership material. You've got a trustee on one hand who is the sister of the deceased owner of the franchise, and you've got the uh, former college roommate that was assigned to uh, be roommates with Paul Allen, and that's why he happens to be in the position that he's in, if you really want to talk about the connections. But you have these things, and you know, you've know you got a brand that's pretty broken. No star player, no nobody that you would see as a generational franchise tentpole, nobody untouchable on trade deadline day. Like, there's not a lot to sell there. But the last thing that the Blazers should be doing internally is having players – talk about each other, tear each other down, uh, highlight the negative stuff that's going on, point at the GM, talk about the ownership situation, that it's absentee. Like, you shouldn't be talking about that. What you should be selling, if you're the Trailblazers, is you should be selling the idea that this is a young franchise that's got some players that could blossom one day. And, hey, if you're a fan, get in on the ground floor, start rooting for these guys before anybody saw them coming. Like, you could brand the entire season around the idea. It's not a rise with us. It's not a grow with us. It's like, you know, uh, you, you know, it's more of a you got to like these kids feel that I would try to sell, put out there. But when I watch the NBA product, and, and, and frankly, it's not just Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic. What I want to hear about and what I think Adam Silver's League should be selling is athleticism, star players, great performances, you know, people buy tickets to go see Giannis. They buy tickets uh, to go see the best players in the league doing things that, that people, uh, you know, regular people cannot dream of doing. And we're seeing the best basketball that's played anywhere. And, oh, by the way, uh, isn't this league terrific? And instead, what I see when I watch the NBA product is I see little spats like this. I see noise on social media about guys who feel disrespected. And then I see every star player in the league every possession complaining and bitching at the officials about calls that they didn't get and treatment that they didn't get and nobody i got to be honest with you nobody looks like they're having fun when they're playing the game and and that I, for that to that standpoint i think this whole standoff with Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic of course it takes up a lot of oxygen because Draymond Green does that when he walks into the room but this shouldn't be the focal point of what Adam's, Adam Silver's league is trying to sell to people right now. And for that reason, I think it's a big misfire. You And you've talked about the NBA being like the WWE. So this is on brand for it, right? It's a promo. They're, they're cutting a promo for themselves of Draymond Green promoting his podcast. And Nurk's going to promote himself by going after Draymond Green. And then it's going to lead on the court. And they're going to play one-on-one in the playoffs. And if you're the NBA, you're banking on the Suns and the Warriors somehow meet up in the first round of the NBA playoffs. And then we're really going to get people intrigued by that. And I'm with you. I don't think it's good for the NBA. I don't think that's the great way to go about it. But that's the way a lot of the fans like it. The fans like the drama. They want to see these guys talk off the court and not worry about on the court. I'm more of an on-the-court guy. Like I like to watch the actual games and figure it out that way. But I think the NBA is fine with it. This is what the NBA has really steered into last you know five ten years they've really steered into social media they've really steered into this kind of drama off the court and it you know you can say it works you can say it doesn't but this is what they do and so for me it's fine i think it's i think it's interesting and fascinating that these guys are willing to go out and talk about each other like this because you usually don't hear that out of nba guys you don't hear them talk 
in public like this and how basically they hate each other. But at the same time, it, it feels a little uh, it feels a little gimmicky to me. Like, what are they really going to do? They're not going to do anything on the court. They're not going to fight each other. They're not going to do anything like that. They're just going to play basketball again, and yeah. you know, and they're just going to get in each other's face and fake argue. So, I I think yeah, the fake like the fake fighting. You know, the whole fake fighting, and you know, it's like let me jump on my YouTube channel and you know throw shade at Nurk. And and by the way, like we all know. The deficiencies of Yusuf Nurkic are not unique to him. Most There's a lot of players in the NBA who are soft. There's a lot of big guys who play small in the NBA. Just because somebody is 6'9 or bigger doesn't necessarily make them a tough guy. And it's why, like, you know, the true tough guys in the league really do stand out. Like, there's some, there's some guys that you wouldn't want to mess with, but Yusuf Nurkic is not that guy. And I frankly think that Draymond Green tries to portray himself as one of the tough guys, but there was a time where he was a smart player who helped his team on the court, was a smart defender, knew that he wasn't the focal point on the offensive end, knew that he should only take a shot if it was a gimme, and, you know, he was a distributor, he was, uh, you know, a, a, a guy that you viewed as a as a good teammate, but on most nights I'm watching Draymond Green now and I'm going, he's a distraction, he's overpaid, He's not as good as he used to be, and I guess he's picked out somebody whose game he can uh, favorably match up with in today's world, and Yusuf Nurkic. It is a small sample size, but ever since Draymond's come back, you know the Warriors have won seven of the last eight games. They've played a lot better, and maybe it is Draymond, maybe it's not, um, but he has helped the last couple games. But, you know, but like you said, before that, he was terrible, and the Warriors were a worse team when he was on the court. So is it just a little stretch here? Did he need that break Need that because of his age? Maybe that helped him out. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the Warriors play towards the end of the season. If they continue to be successful – I imagine Draymond's going to be going on his podcast talking a lot more trash because that's what gets him going. And we always wondered, after the punch to Nurk, like, is Draymond really going to change? The answer is no, because he is he's 34 years old, 33 years old, almost 34. That's the way he plays basketball. It's with a chip on his shoulder. It's by talking trash. And now he's doing that again, and the Warriors are winning again. So he's not going to stop. And so I want to see how he uh, how the Warriors react and how they keep playing and see how Draymond reacts when people come at him because people are going to come at him now. And it'll be very fun to watch that. So I'm excited to see on-the-court stuff. Uh, but Draymond's going to be taking it off the court for sure because that's yeah, what gets him going. For, for me, though, it doesn't translate. Like, I'm looking at the Warriors. They're 26-25. and 25. From a Blazers-centric standpoint, I'm kind of wondering, like, at what point is this a team that's going to flip the switch? Uh, you know, they've won seven of the last ten, so I guess they have five in a row. So is this a team that's going to flip the switch and – you know, try to be the six or seven seed, or is this a team that's gonna that gonna falter? That's the drama and the intrigue for me. But I'm looking at the rest of this league: Minnesota, Oklahoma City, and the Clippers and the Nuggets in the top four positions in the West. Those are the teams we should be talking about today, Steve. We should not be talking about the tenth place team in the Western Conference that's got a guy who is, uh, you know, barking at Yusuf Nurkic for being soft, like. You could do that in the 300 level at Moda Center. Like, I would, you know, yeah, I would love to talk about the Clippers and the Timberwolves last night. Timberwolves go on the road, beat the Clippers. They're the one seed in the West, the Minnesota Timberwolves. But no, we got to talk about Draymond Green because you know what? That's what he does. He talks on his podcast, and he's part of the new media. John, we have, like, you know, as part of the team on the show, I got a variety of people that are always mining for the stories. What's the biggest thing going on? What are people talking about? What might I care about? And I had. Just a chorus of people today saying, did you hear what Draymond said about Yusuf Nurkic? 
And I, at some point, I'm like, you know, this feels like Conor McGregor, you know, in uh, in a, in a WWE sort of promo situation where you're trying to sell pay per view tickets. And and I, in the end of it, I'm left going, this isn't what the game. This isn't what it should be about. This it should be about the basketball that's being played, the All Star break, the standings. Uh, how well Boston has played to this point in the Eastern Conference? How well you know is it? Are we headed to Boston, Minnesota in the NBA Finals? And instead, it's you know the longtime Blazers, um, you know big guy who we all know is soft, being called soft by the biggest distraction in in the modern NBA world, and it's just a little too WWE for me. All right, coming up, we got punch and audio. We got great sound. Big guests on today's show, George Klyovkov, uh, out as the Pac-12 commissioner. Pac-12 conference has begun to separate with the commissioner. What does it mean? We've got John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group to come on and kick that around with me. Uh, later in the show, Jerry Palm, CBS Sports, will be with us. you got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. I don't need the players to play nice with each other. I don't need them to love each other, to like each other publicly. But I think it's sad that in the NBA we've got some really good things going on. And this is the story that will dominate the uh, headlines. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic and Draymond Green in a spat. Go to your rooms. Adam Silver should say, come back out when you guys are ready to uh, to make it about basketball. I don't know. I just think the league has so much better. But I think, it's, I think it's kind of symbolic of what goes on in the NBA. I don't like it when the players, after every make or miss, turn to the official and complain on the way up the court. Like, it's every single play, lobbying for calls, complaining to the officials, and it. after a while, I'm just like, gosh, you know, like, get get back on defense or go, you know, go, you know, go play. Like, I'm it, tired of seeing you complain. But wasn't that stuff happening in the Jordan era with the complaining of the refs? Not as much, man. Not as much. There was some. I mean, obviously, there's always complaining to the officials, but it's every play, man. It's every possession. When I watch a game, I, it drives me bonkers, and I'm like, just you know, play. Like if you're you legitimately think you were fouled, yeah. But it's every play, either the offense or the defense is complaining. Every and it's all about lobbying the official for the next call. So you know, maybe the league needs to uh, to enforce that. But I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that that it bothers. Let's play punch it audio. We got great sound today. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Nick Wright went on the Dan Patrick Show, said he was confident in the Kansas City Chiefs all season long, all postseason, too. Why? Here's Nick Wright. Punch it. Nobody else to me clearly, demonstrably was better than Kansas City. But when Baltimore and Can- and San Francisco's quarterbacks are totally unproven postseason performers, and the Chiefs quarterback is arguably the greatest postseason quarterback ever, inarguably top two, it just felt like they were way undervalued by the world. I mean, I guess to a, to an extent, they proved that they were undervalued, winning three consecutive games in which they were an underdog. But I don't think it surprised anybody what Patrick Mahomes did at the end of the football game. 
I think what is the bigger surprise is looking at the Chiefs all season long. This is a team that went 11-6. and six. This is a team that went 5-4 and four at home and, you know, had some bad losses or some real questionable losses throughout the season. And there was some question about, you know, had they lost, had they slipped? And I think it was legit. It wasn't about Mahomes. It was about the rest of the operation. Credit to Andy Reid. Credit to uh, Patrick Mahomes, certainly. But he's the kind of quarterback that if you put him in a one-possession game, he knows exactly what to do. Now, uh, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Brock Purdy, nothing against those guys. But, yeah, Nick Wright's correct in that you are, uh, you're you looking at a guy in Patrick Mahomes that knows how to close. That is a big advantage. Merrill Hodge talking about Caleb Williams. He says the Bears should not draft the USC quarterback. I've been shaking my head at this for a while. Punch it. Well, I've only watched Caleb three games last year, three this year, so I'm only halfway done, okay? The one thing that I that is clear, he is not special. He is not something unique like a Patrick Mahomes. And I hope the Bears don't think, well, let's 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 try to make up for our mistake when we pass up Patrick Mahomes and go get the Patrick Mahomes. The kid is not Patrick Mahomes. Ain't even remotely close to that. I don't know if anybody's Patrick Mahomes except for Patrick Mahomes. That said, I I, I love the beginning of that clip where Mayor Hodge says, well, I watched him three games this season, and I watched him three games last season, and I'm here to declare that he's not special. I think you need a bigger sample size. I think we all have seen enough of Caleb Williams to know that he's a remarkable talent. Does his game translate to the NFL? I think it does. He's got the arm. He's got the. He's an elusive guy in the pocket. He can hurt you with his legs if he needs to. Doesn't prefer to, but if he needs to, he can kill you with his legs. We've all seen it. I think he's going to be a hell of an NFL quarterback. And I think the Bears would be dumb to pass on him. Is it the only fear? Well, this is my only fear is can he play on script? Like he's so good, he's so talented that he likes to go out of the pocket. He likes to try to play like Patrick Mahomes. But when you get him in the pocket, when you get him on script, that's when he seems to struggle. Like, that's the one fear I have. Like, think back to that game at Notre Dame when he threw a bunch of picks. Like, he wasn't out and about trying to, you know, freelance. He was in the pocket trying to make those plays. I feel like he's so talented that he relies on his gifts too much. And so, like, that is my only worry is that if you actually can make him play in the pocket and play on script, that's when you're going to get him. I'm more worried that the NFL team that picks him isn't good enough around him than I am about Caleb Williams. I think he's a really good player. I think he's just tremendously talented. I think if you gave me a choice of any player in college football at the quarterback position, I'm taking him first. Uh, I think this season was really puzzling to see what happened at USC. Questions on defense. The team was good enough offensively to win every game. And, And Caleb Williams is in the middle of that. Now, are the Bears good enough around him? Or is he going to go into that situation and struggle? You, that's a question for another but, day. But, I, I I also think NFL teams that are in the Bears position, I get it. You need a quarterback, but you need a whole bunch of other players at different positions too. I would be, in this draft, tempted, as good as Williams is, and I'll buy this argument more than he's not special, I would be tempted to see if I could move back and get better at other positions because we've seen what happens if you just pick a quarterback and stick him in there. All right, John, your name, the Bears GM. 
what are you doing? Are you drafting Caleb Williams or Drake May, or are you tra- or are you trading him back and going with Justin Fields as your quarterback? I'm always trying to move back and see what I can get, but you've got to wow me. I I need somebody who really wants to come up and get Caleb Williams to overpay for it. If I if nobody's willing to do that, I'm taking Caleb Williams, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ride or die with him at quarterback. I think he's that good. Victor Wembanyama is he that good? Second career triple-double, 27 points, 14 rebounds, 10 blocked shots. Punch it. Victor Wembenyama wowing people. Ten block shots. Has he arrived since January 2nd? Averaging 22.6 points, 10 rebounds, little over three blocks per game. Has he arrived? Yes, he is putting up incredible numbers for his age. At He's starting to play more minutes. Popovich has started to take some of the minutes restriction off of him. He is awesome. Now, the rest of the Spurs team, they need to fit around him, but he is the real deal, and he is coming into his own. I think he's figuring out the NBA the shooting percentage is around 50% also from January, where before that he was under 45%, I believe. So he's starting to figure out the offensive side, which is the part where I thought he would struggle a little bit. Now he's starting to figure that out, man. I I mean, next season he's going to be an all-star, and we'll see probably an all-NBA player. Like, that's how good this guy is going to be. So it'll be interesting to see what the Spurs do, how quickly they can put a team around him before they start competing for the playoff spots. And, and they're due to, you know, they probably have the third, maybe the fourth worst, worst record in the NBA by the time it's settled, they're going be, to be, you're going to be in a, in a lottery situation. Again. Yeah, that might be a spot where they look to trade. Like we talked about the Justin Fields thing, they may look to trade that pick for a veteran to put next to Wimbanyama because they may try to go for the playoffs next season. Joel Klatt talking about Ohio State. Ryan Day has hired Chip Kelly as his offensive coordinator. What gives? Here's Klatt. Punch it. And it was already such a big hurdle in the first place to kind of like get over the hump of Ryan Day saying, "I'm not going to call the plays." I'm going to delegate. I'm going to do all these things that I think we need to do to evolve in order to beat Michigan, win the Big Ten, and eventually, hopefully, win the national championship. And now you're at square one. So what do you do? Well, when you're at square one, when your back is against the wall, you tend to lean on things that you know and that you can trust. There is not a person in this business that Ryan Day trusts more than Chip Kelly. I remember where Chip Kelly was when he found out UCLA was leaving the Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten. He's playing golf with Ryan Day. They were on the golf course. Ryan Day played for Chip Kelly at New Hampshire. They've known each other for years. They're close. This is a uh, this is a uh, solution for Ryan Day that was a no-brainer. Now Chip Kelly was off interviewing for all these NFL coordinator positions. He obviously wanted out at UCLA. He's got Ryan Day, you know, with a problem at the offensive coordinator position. He's got a hole now. Uh, this is a good fit. It allows Ryan Day to focus on the other things that he, that a head coach needs to focus on. He should not be sitting there worried about, you know, what you're doing on second down, third down. You know, he's got to be – Ryan Day needs to be the CEO of the program, and he's getting, a, I think, a really – talented play caller in Chip Kelly. I'm really interested to see how this reunion in in Columbus works out for the Buckeyes because I think there's a potential that 
this is a game-changing hire for Ryan Day. I have I had said weeks ago I thought Oregon had pulled even or maybe in front of Ohio State. I'm now going, I don't know. These two teams, I got to see them in the spring. I need to see Oregon's quarterback play in the spring. Dylan Gabriel, is he the guy? If so, what can he be? But I also need to see what Ohio State's going to look like next season. And I got to be honest with you, October 12th, Autzen Stadium, Chip Kelly and the Buckeyes coming to play the Ducks. Keep an eye on it. Chris Sims talking about Las Vegas and the Super Bowl. Was it a uh, was it an ideal setting? Vegas and the Super Bowl should they just hold it there every year? Chris Sims, punch it. You're not supposed to spend nine days in Vegas. That that's for sure. Uh, but I, it was a lot of fun. It was a great Super Bowl host city. It was. I mean the the hotels, the setup. It's made for the Super Bowl. And I, I'm with you. Like it was cool to be back. And maybe I will go back before the next Super Bowl. I had a lot of fun as well. But. Uh, I, I, like you, I think had the same thought. We talked about it a little yesterday. I mean, Vegas, that seems like a slam dunk to be in the regular rotation with L.A., New Orleans, Miami, Arizona as kind of the staples for the Super Bowl host cities. And I, I think it proved to really be the perfect spot. The stadium was amazing. We didn't even talk about that. That was my first time in a Legion Stadium. Uh, I was really impressed with the setup and how everything was there in Vegas. I've been to Allegiant Stadium a handful of times, couple of pack, three Pac-12 championship games, and and it's a great setting. And I've long thought that the NFL needed to install the Super Bowl in a static location, keep it there, make it an annual thing, much like the Rose Bowl happens at the Rose Bowl. The Super Bowl perhaps should happen in Las Vegas every year, but the NFL owners are never going to go for it. They're going to want to use the idea that you can bring a Super Bowl to your city to help local and state uh, politicians get on board with stadium improvements and upgrades and investment in infrastructure and all the things that owners love to do. I thought uh, Chris Sims spoke for a lot of people, and you know, while we're all looking at the waste management golf event going what a disaster that was a lot of people coming out of the super bowl going hey that that was that was a pretty good show and that was a pretty nice setting for it meanwhile mina kimes talking about kyle shanahan 49ers coach how much should blame should go on shanahan's shoulders Here's Mina. Punch it. There are so many fluky things that decide a Super Bowl, whether it's a guy, the ball bouncing off of a guy's foot on a punt return or an extra point being missed, that I think it's really unfair to point entirely at the head coach when his play calling, his brilliant sequencing, his ability to put defenses in conflict is what put them in that position to begin with. So, you know, he can always get better. Everybody can get better, especially the game management stuff. But I feel like a lot of the criticism has been un- overblown and that his record is a product of the time he's playing in or the competition more than anything. Well, of course. Like, you know, that's what we do. You know, when when a coach uh, wins the Super Bowl, he's a genius. And he's on the losing side. He's an idiot. He must be blamed. He has to go. He must be fired. Quarterback wins. Patrick Mahomes is anointed as... The second coming of Tom Brady. Never mind that Tom Brady's got way more Super Bowl championships than Patrick Holmes. You know, Patrick Holmes is Mahomes is halfway there. And and uh and you know, Andy Reid, let's anoint him as uh, you know, the greatest uh, NFL coach of all time while we call Shanahan a bum. That's what we do. That's part of the aftermath of a Super Bowl. But in all seriousness, 
I'm looking at Kyle Shanahan and I'm going, yeah, you know, he he holds some blame here for maybe not being fully aware of what's going on in the overtime. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Also, maybe being a little bit conservative. But the truth is, so much of the game comes down to a play here, a play there, a bounce of the ball. I went back and I was looking at that fumble, that turnover on the punt. You know, it hits the ground, bounces six inches the other direction. You know, know, the 49ers are fine. Maybe they win the Super Bowl and everybody's talking about Shanahan's finally breaking through. Like, of course, this is what we do. It's, it's, you know, this isn't like, we don't do this in our regular lives. We shouldn't. Shouldn't overreact. (laughs) But we do it in sports. It's part of the... The process, and I think Kyle Shanahan signed up for it when he uh, became head coach of the Niners. Meanwhile, Shanahan doing some evaluation, looking at you know his decisions in the big moment. Punch it. Uh, I mean, like I've told you guys before, anytime you lose, every decision you made, I mean, you make a decision every play throughout that game. So uh, when you lose, you'll go over that stuff um, always um, throughout the entire offseason, through cutups, through everything. But um, you know, there is nothing that. I thought in the moment that I did wrong. It was everything. I was proud of that and um, like the thought process behind everything. You know, you, you got to live with it if you're Kyle Shanahan. Now you got to come find a way to regroup and come back and try to punch through next season and not play your best football in October and November. And that's what the Niners did this year. Speaking of overreactions, Dan Orlovsky declaring Patrick Mahomes as the greatest player ever. Brady's the GOAT, he says, but Patrick Mahomes is the best player. Punch it. Best player I've ever witnessed play this game, man. And, I, and you know, Rich, Tom Brady is the GOAT. That He is the greatest of all time. And those are two different things for me. You Just because of the amount of championships and longevity, Patrick is the best player I've ever seen in my life. And the last two years have completely solidified that certainly this super bowl run man it's an awesome you know i get asked like oh you get to call the super bowl and you know part of me is like oh i i, I don't want to like downplay it but i'm like yeah it's the international feed you know and then i had to check myself and be like no no dude it's the super bowl at some point you're gonna lie in your deathbed and be like dude you called patrick mahomes as super bowls and so it was uh it's it's been cool to just just witness, man. I'm such a fan of the guy. I got it. I I was with him and just kind of nodding as he's talking there. I got it. You're you're entitled to say he's a better player, but Mahomes is the goat. Whatever hair you want to split, you know. It's like was Kobe the best skilled, most skilled player of all time, and Michael Jordan the goat? Like we can play that game. But the thing that jumped out at me is, I don't want to be on my deathbed saying. Like these were the things that were important that you that you called the game that that Patrick Mahomes played in. Like you know, hopefully on your deathbed you're thinking about your kids, you know, your family, all the personal victories you had. How you would love to go back and read a story with you know your seven year old if you could get in a time machine. Like you know, you're not gonna be thinking of your next hot take. No, I'm not gonna be like I got to interview. President Obama on the radio show or gosh we had Dan Lanning and Chip Kelly and Mario Cristobal and Jonathan Smith on radio all you know what's my last tweet gonna be yeah like you know heaven forbid I've told Anna this you know if I get hit by a bus like somebody just delete all my tweets 
because I don't want my kids to go back and be like, what was dad about or what was great-grandchildren? What was great-grandpa all about? And they read my tweets. That's not that shouldn't be your essence, Dan Orlovsky. That's not which that's not your contribution to the world. That I called Patrick Mahomes wins in the Super Bowl. Come on. Gotta be bigger, bigger things than that. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News Superstar coming up. He's gonna join us uh, to talk about the Pac twelve conference. Pac-12 has uh, begun to separate with George Klyovkov, the commissioner. It's not going to be the subject of our big splash. because Why? Because it's overdue. I've been talking about this uh, for weeks. Um, but the Pac-12 conference uh, moving on, seemingly, uh, with, uh, with co- the commissioner role. And what comes next for the conference, uh, Wilner and I will kick it around. You get to hear that conversation coming up in about 10 minutes. But uh, the Pac-12 uh, has begun the separation process with the embattled commissioner, uh, George Klyovkov. The Pac-12 will move on without him. That's not a big surprise, as you uh, know, if you're a listener of this show. I have been talking about it. Uh, we had Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, last summer, who told us George Klyovkov would not be part of the Pac-2's plans moving forward. Also, um uh, you had Pat Chun, the Washington State Athletic Director, who has said he is George Klyovkov not part of the uh, plan for them either. And so it's just now been a matter of, you know, when, when's the right time. And I have felt that Klyovkov's in the way. Like, you know, there's just a point when you're the Pac-2 or the Pac-12 or whatever you're going to be. Um, you know, there's a point where you got to move forward, and the guy who was there who was on watch when the conference imploded, um, that guy's got to be somewhere else. Like, he can't be in the way. And You're trying to move forward as a conference. That's not a guy you want around. And, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, just, uh, it's just not, uh, it's not good for the operation. It's not good for uh, the overall uh, fit of the uh, – of the mission moving forward. And so there's just a point where you've got to go, hey, we need to move in a different direction. So George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, uh, Pac-12 parting ways with him, or beginning that separation. So uh, you you have that as a bit of breaking news today. But it isn't our big splash. Of course, our big splash comes from somewhere else. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash! Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger, and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, you remember that Jackie Robinson statue that was in Kansas? Well, the Wichita Police Department says they've made an arrest nearly three weeks after the statue was stolen. From uh, a park, McAdams Park, which is home of League 42, a youth baseball league for 600 children. Uh, it, Ricky Alderetti, 45-year-old, is charged with felony theft, aggravated criminal damage to property, identity theft, making false information. The statue, which was valued at $75,000, was stolen from the park. It's been there since 2021. 
Um, Bob Lutz, who's an executive director for the league of the youth league that plays there, said, quote, we're feeling good that someone is being held responsible. And I do believe that all individuals involved will be apprehended. Now, the statue was cut at its ankles, leaving only, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson's replica cleats behind on the pedestal. Um, the uh, the by the statue was made of 95 percent copper. Now, surveillance video was used to uh, to identify Al Duretti as one of those involved. And I say one of those involved because there were at least three individuals there when the statue was taken and it was taken somewhere else. Now, police recovered a vehicle they believe is connected to the case. Then they found burned remnants of the statue when they were responding to a trash can fire at another park. Uh, of course, donations have poured in, approaching $300,000. Uh, the original mold of the statue still exists. It'll be used to rebuild a new one. But, uh, you know, sometimes crime, or often crime, does not pay. And this is a case where Ricky Alderetti, uh is uh, going to face uh, a uh, face justice, so to speak. And I hope they apprehend the other people. But uh, this is a good ending to a bad story. And it looks like that Little League has got the funds to rebuild the statue and then some. And uh, Jackie Robinson and his legacy live on. Uh, you can't knock the statue down. You can't knock the legend down. All right, coming up, John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News. We're going to talk about George Klyovkov. We're going to be talking about Oregon State, uh, Washington State, the Pac-12 basketball season, what's left of the Pac-12 between now and the summer all of that kicked around. Who will be the next commissioner in the conference? What kind of leader do they need? I'm going to guess he's going to say Teresa Gold, but let's see what Wilner says when he uh, joins us here in a moment. Well, we've talked on this show a lot about what happens to the Pac-12 after George Klyovkov is gone, after the 10 departing schools leave to go off to the Big Ten and the ACC and the Big 12. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News had the news today. Breaking story. Pac-12 officially moving on. Process could take a while. But Klyovkov's tenure coming to a close. Now, we asked Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director, in August about the roles of George Klyovkov and Oliver Luck, the consultant that the Pac-2 had hired. Here's what Barnes had to say. Right now, John, we, we are, uh, you know, Washington State and Oregon State are joined at the hip. We're, we're in uh, continual conversation with Stanford and Cal uh, as recently as uh, this afternoon. Um, we'll continue that dialogue, um, helping them get to, to where they're at. But uh, George has not been involved in our path forward at all um, to this point. Um, and I, I'll just tell you that's a presidential decision in terms of what his role may be um, moving forward. And so... Uh, certainly that'll be further further discussed and and um, uh, obviously with George and and we'll we'll see what that looks like moving forward but uh, not that has yet to be determined six months later George Klyovkov separating with the Pac-12 conference not a huge surprise I frankly think he needs to be out of the way I think Oregon State Washington State have a lot they need to get to and uh, I have been uh, a little perplexed on why they've kept him around i'm sure they have their reasons uh john wilner broke the news today he joins us now uh wilner um 
surprised at the timing, not surprised? Is this the right time? Well, I mean, you could have made the case the right time was August 5th, right? I mean, the day <laughs> after the collapse, uh, or basically any day since then. Um, you know, I, I think that they there was some kind of value, especially from Washington State's standpoint with the college football playoff, because WSU President Kirk Schultz is on the CFP board, the PAC-2's position in the future of the CFP is an important piece of this whole thing. Klyovkov was, you know, as a commissioner, he's on the management committee. I think there may have been, you know, for that reason, uh, keep they decided to keep him on for a while. But, you know, uh, he's not going to be missed. That's for sure. Uh, we'll see what happens with the playoff. They're, they've got a lot to, to kind of still figure out here. But, uh, you know, they've, he, he's not doing anything in terms of the day-to-day running of the conference. The 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 Oregon State Washington State contingent has control of the board. Um, per your report, um, you know the board has given the departing ten schools some notice of this. How does that process work in your mind? I mean, according to Judge Gary Libby's order, Oregon State Washington State, um, I suppose, can make decisions, but probably need to inform the other 10 of what they're doing, what the plan is. I'm sure they're going to look over and shrug and go, yeah, do what you need to do. But how does that process work? Well, I'm sure that they already know. Like, I can't imagine that this is uh, at all a surprise to the 10. Uh, I'm sure that it, this is a, uh, I think it's three days, you know, so that Washington State and Oregon State have to post a notice. And I believe the other 10 schools have three days to respond uh, before action gets taken, but I cannot imagine that the ten uh, didn't know this was coming uh, from prior conversations with with the Cougars and Beavers. So uh, my guess is they've already got this thing worked out, and it's just going to be a matter of you know dealing with Kliakov on on the exact nature of the settlement. Right? They are. It doesn't appear that they're going to try to fire him with cause, even though they could have tried to fire him for incompetence or insubordination, I think they're taking the high road and just want to be rid of him and bring some kind of settlement. I don't know exactly what it'll be, $4 million, $5 million maybe, and then each side just kind of walks away, and that's, that's that, and the Cougars and Beavers can move on. Let's look at his legacy. I mean, he follows Larry Scott, perhaps an overcorrection from the Larry Scott personality and and leadership style, uh, you know, he comes in and inherits a media rights negotiation and very quickly finds on his one-year anniversary or so that USC and UCLA are leaving the conference. Could Should George have done more to prevent the L.A. schools from leaving? I mean, sure. There's no doubt he should have done more. What Would it have mattered is a different matter, right? That I'm not convinced that there's anything that the Pac-12 presidents would have approved on June 29th, 2022, that could have prevented USC and UCLA from leaving the next day. Because I think the presidents were before they had, before they thought the schools were going to leave, they didn't have any motivation to do the things that were necessary to keep them from leaving, right? Which was going to be some kind of unequal revenue sharing. Uh, as a start, 
and they were not prepared to do that. I mean, Oregon, I don't think there's any chance Oregon or Washington would have agreed to unequal revenue share with the L.A. schools. Uh, then they leave. Could he have done more? Sure. I just don't. I think to a certain degree with everything about his tenure, you have to put it in context with the presidents who were ultimately in charge of the conference, and they were. it was not a good group of presidents in terms of running the college, the college conference. I think that, you know, when I think about his biggest misfires – I hear people say, well, he, should, he had job one was keeping the L.A. schools. Okay, you could say that, but I agree with you. I think his failure to manage the presidents and chancellors is maybe the biggest misfire of his tenure. Right, and Larry Scott was very good at that. And, uh, you know, either because of what had happened under Scott or because of Kliakov's personality and management style or because of both of those things, he couldn't really kind of corral them. He did have a tough job, right, because immediately after the L.A. schools leave, right, and everybody else is searching for a life raft, he's got to convince them to stay together. And the way he does that is, look, stick together. We, we're going to sign a good media deal. There's value in these 10 schools. You're best off sticking together. Then he's got to turn around a month later and say, well, ESPN's given us a terrible offer, right? That's a tough it's kind of a tough needle to thread, but I also think uh, a stronger commissioner w- would have been able to do it. Uh, you know, I, my feeling is uh, realignment is a rock fight, and he showed up with a teddy bear. And that was just not – he was just not cut out, totally ill-equipped for, for the task at hand. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Oregon State, Washington State have a lot, of course, uh, you know, in the long view, in the short term. Uh, in your mind, biggest uh, biggest decisions or biggest issues facing the Babers and Cougars? Biggest issues? Well, I, you know, you could go with the, the knowns or you could go with the known unknowns. Uh, right? The knowns are the biggest issue is going to be competing on the field and signing a media rights deal here in the next month or two that gives them some decent visibility, right? Uh, the, the unknown, the known unknowns are exactly what's, what will happen with the ACC. How is the NCAA going to evolve? What's going to happen with the college football playoff and the access and the money? And how will the Beavers and Cougars be part of it? So there's so many issues. Some of them are outside of their control. Some of them are not. But it's like just this, you know, a series of tidal waves coming at them. And, you know, they've, they've got to do the best they can to try to make decisions in the present day that will set them up for what might happen in two years or five years. The management committee of the college football playoff, 11 votes. Uh, you know, Kirk Schultz, the president of Washington State, has got to vote. They have to have a unanimous vote to make changes uh, in the next two years to the playoff format. The, the other the other voters would very much like Oregon State, Washington State to uh, to get on board with the idea that they should not get an automatic qualification. That that you know maybe they shouldn't be entitled to a full share of the normal distribution. I don't know what goes into that, but Schultz uh, pushing back reportedly wants some kind of guarantee that Oregon State, Washington State can keep. Uh, a vote, a seat at the table, maybe distributions beyond 2025. What is his aim here, and, and what do you expect to happen 
with that CFP management committee? I mean, it's all one giant negotiation, not only for the next two years, but also for starting in, with the 2026 season. The thing is, he's looking for the two schools to get a seat at the table starting in 26, but there is no playoff starting in 2026. ESPN's contract uh, runs out uh, after two seasons from now, right? Now they are negotiating a new deal with ESPN. In fact, it was reported today that it's going to be like $1.3 billion per year for six years. But all of the important issues like revenue distribution, format, governance, you know, those things have not been settled at all. So he's kind of holding out for a seat at a table that hasn't really been built yet. Um, now he should negotiate for everything he can because once, you know, once they settle on everything, Washington State, Oregon State are going to be in a very bad position. So if he's got any leverage now, he should be using it. I think that's the smart move, but I don't know that ultimately it's going to position the two schools, uh, you know, in a, in a great, great spot because everything's going to change. Yeah. And especially with, uh, you know, uh, Big Ten SEC sharing notes huddled up. I think it has a lot of people wondering what they're up to. What do you think they are up to? Why Why do the Big Ten and the SEC uh, need to put their heads together? Well, I think that they've, they're obviously fed up with the NCAA's lack of leadership. They're concerned that a whole bunch of lawsuits are going to basically blow up the NCAA model at, without them having control of it. So what they're trying to do is – they're trying to blow up the NCAA model while being in control. So I think that they're going to basically try to settle this giant lawsuit against the NCAA, the House case, by creating a structure for college sports that basically satisfies the plaintiffs in that. So they say, we're going to do A, B, and C, and then the plaintiffs say, all right, that's fine. We'll either drop the case or we'll, we'll settle, right? They want to be ahead, get ahead of it. So it's not the court saying you got to do A, B, and C, and you owe five billion dollars to the to the plaintiffs. So I think it's basically about collective bargaining. It's about uh, revenue sharing with the players. It's about all those economic issues. Is really what they're getting at. Now the playoff, the future of the playoff is part of it, but this is mostly about the future of the NCAA economically. Do you foresee that? major college athletics, major college football, will have another round of complete restructuring, realignment, and that, you know, will be left with a division of schools in this upper tier. Do you foresee that kind of model that has been talked about? Oh, to me, it's a inevitability. I just don't know if it's going to happen in the next two years or the end of this decade, right before the Big Ten's next media deal, or in the mid-2030s. But there's no question to me that the current structure of college football will change dramatically. There's going to be a lot of schools in the same position Washington State and Oregon State are in now. It may now, take a few years. Oh, go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, Oregon and Washington kind of you know, foreshadowed that. you know. And I know I talked to people at Oregon who said, hey, uh, this decision that we're making to leave to go to the Big Ten it's it's a 20-year view. Like, they were looking 20 years down the road. Hey, where do we want to be when this this restructuring happens? Um, what do Oregon State, Washington State, in your mind, need to do if they want to be included in that? Or 
has that ship sailed by them being left out already to this point? I mean, I don't see how those two schools could get into if the sport restructures into basically an upper division of 30, 25, 30 schools, which is what I think is going to happen. Uh, the Oregon State and Washington State aren't in that upper division. But neither are Stanford or Cal, UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah. I mean, most of those schools are also left out, right? That is the, that is the heavyweight football brand. Because my view is, you know, Fox has got a billion-dollar TV deal with the Big Ten. Uh, but at some point here, the big, Fox is going to say there's no more money, right? Because the bundle's shrinking. The economics of sports media are changing. And so, the you know, it's the big brands, it's the big matchups that matter. So Fox is going to say, well, there's not much more money, but so you keep that, you divide up that billion however you want. Well, what's going to happen is the Big Ten's going to say, well, we're, we're going to stop giving Minnesota the same amount of money as Ohio State. And Illinois is not going to get the same amount as Michigan. And so then you're going to have this massive separation between the big schools and the small schools. And Washington, Oregon State, Washington State, Oregon State are going to have, you know, 60 schools in the same boat they are. Yeah, I keep thinking you're right. Like, you know, I wouldn't put Oregon State, Washington State anywhere near the top 30. But if you say no. it's the top 48, they're on that bubble. I think they're in the ne that next group from like 48 to 64. They're in that range. So, then, in your mind, is there a middle division that Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State play in? Are they playing some of the upper-tier schools? Or how much division between uh, those those tiers do you see? I don't know if there's upper-tier. They may just create a mini-NFL where it's hmm. like 32 teams, Break away. 40 teams, and they're just playing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's going to be hard for Ohio State and Michigan to kick Illinois and Minnesota out of the Big Ten. It'd be a lot easier for Ohio State and Michigan to go create their own conference, right? And and come join us, Notre Dame and USC and Alabama and Texas and those folks. So I don't know if there'll be a middle division. I think there might be a top 30 and then everybody, the other 90 or 100. I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to look. Uh, and it's going to, it could take a while. But, I mean, that's clearly where we're going here because most of these schools are not going to be able to afford uh, this the revenue sharing with the players, and they're they're going to get left out when the media dollars uh, shrink. You know, it's just uh, it, I think they're better off just kind of ripping the bandaid, and I think that's partly what the SEC and Big Ten are trying to do is let's get to the next step quickly instead of having this death by a thousand cuts over the next decade. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Wilner, you know Teresa Gold. Deputy Commissioner, uh, wildly popular with the staff in the Pac-12 offices. Is she the interim commissioner in your mind, or, or do they go outside, or do they need a commissioner if they're going to play as a conference of two? Well, I think they probably need a commissioner for the spring sports. I mean, let's say they, they cut clear cuff loose here in the next two weeks. I mean, they still got a basketball tournament. They got spring sports, spring sports championships. I kind of think they need somebody who is in charge, right? So to me, she's the obvious candidate. I mean, she knows more about college sports than either of the previous two commissioners did. She's popular on the campuses. She's been an AD uh, UC Davis. She worked at Cal. So 
and and she's you know she's cheap, right? I mean, they, I don't. They probably give her a little bit more money, and she's named commissioner on an interim basis uh, through the you know through the spring sports season. Then what happens? Yeah, you know, I just I don't have a great handle on what size of a conference Washington State and Oregon State are going to need if it's really just football because the other sports are in in the WCC. So, you know, do they need a commissioner for the Pac-2 football? I don't know that they do, but, you know, they're better off probably with her than anybody else for, for a bunch of reasons. John Wilner with us. All right, before I, before I let you go here, uh, in the Bay Area, how much of the discussion after the Super Bowl is about Kyle Shanahan getting back? What's the scuttlebutt right now at the water cooler where you are? Oh, people are bummed, you know, and just a lot of hair pulling over, you know, the missed extra point and whether he should have uh, taken the ball first or second in overtime, you know, what happened on the third third and four that left Chris Jones completely on the best player on Kansas City's defense completely unblocked. <laughs> you know, it's it's just kind of – and then it's like, oh, man, Mahomes did it to us again, and we haven't won in 30 years. It's – it's a uh, it's a tough uh, tough situation down here for a lot of people, but uh, you know, incredible game. The way I look at it is, you know, you got if you're going to beat one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, one of the best coaches, and a great defense, you, you got to play. You can't have a, a muff on special teams and a missed extra point, right? That's eight points on special teams they gave up. That's that's not going to do it. Now, yeah, you know, for people who tune in to Konzano and Wilner, the podcast, they hear us talk about this kind of stuff all the time. But you were without power for an extended stretch, and uh, you toughed it out with your family. What do you know now that you didn't know before you lost power? Uh, well, I knew food costs a lot of money these days, but I didn't really know how much it cost until I had to throw out a refrigerator full of it uh. and a freezer full of food. That was a killer. Because, you know, we couldn't keep our food after being without power for three and a half days. So everything had gone bad. And then I'm just saying, oh, yeah, well, we had these frozen chicken breasts in the freezer. And, oh, there's this and there's that. And, oh, man, that's a lot of money right there, right there, right there. Like our trash can had $500 in it. Yeah. Oh, man, painful. Oh, man, that was a killer. But, well, you know, we were fortunate. We didn't have any flooding. We didn't have any damage. Without power for three and a half days, you know, there's a lot of people in the Bay Area that had it worse. It was a it was a brutal storm, and there's a lot of people in L.A. that had it even worse. They got they got hit harder than we did, even. I love the perspective, John Wilner. Thank you. Good job on the Klyovkov story. Thanks, my friend. There he goes. You know what? I you know it's interesting. You find out about people in the wake of that whole experience with the power being out i talked to him throughout that whole process it wasn't fun for people who were in the uh, portland metropolitan area you remember the the freeze of a couple of years ago you may even have lost power in this last storm but uh wilner at the end saying well other people had it worse uh i like that uh good stuff from wilner uh pac-12 needs to move on from george kleofkoff they're gonna owe him if he had um you know sort of worked through his contract they'd owe him about eight million dollars i don't know what kind of settlement that will be it's not going to be an easy check to write if you are the Pac-12. But for people who are wondering, yes, it will be split. The liabilities of the conference are split 12 ways. So the 10 departing schools are going to have to pick up Klyovkov's salary along with Oregon State and Washington State. I tend to think of his tenure through the prism of 
Larry Scott's tenure. And I think there was a big mistake made in how the conference corrected from Larry Scott, right? They went from a guy who wasn't very collegial, who wasn't very inclusive, who wasn't one to be touchy and feely and soft and talk with people and make people feel involved in decisions, to one who was very collegial, who went around and did a listening tour on his first week on the job and talked to all the schools. And and you got to wonder, amid a negotiation where you need a big, powerful, decisive, convincing voice in the room who's going to help galvanize your presidents and chancellors if George Klyovkov, you know, was the right person to be in that room. He wasn't a killer, and he didn't hire killers. You know, sometimes if you're not a killer as a leader and you don't have that cutthroat personality, you go hire somebody to do that work, right? You got a henchman who comes in to help you negotiate. Well, he hired Doug Perlman at, at Sports Media Advisors, whose style is much the same way as Klyovkov. They're both very collegial. They're nice guys. Like, I'm, you know, I enjoy talking to George Klyovkov, enjoy talking with Doug Perlman, but I don't know in a negotiation situation where you need a killer in the room if that's the right person to be in the room. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Got a big Valentine's Day coming up tomorrow. And I say big because, fellas, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just to be equal opportunity here, if you uh, have not taken care of business, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Do not make the mistake that uh, Mario Cristobal made one Valentine's Day shortly after arriving in uh, the state of Oregon to be the Oregon Ducks football coach. He called me. I happened to be out on a date because it was Valentine's Day, and uh, I was uh, parking the car. I had dropped Anna off at the uh, restaurant that we were going to eat at, and then I was parking the car, and my phone rang, and it was Mario Cristobal, and I, I... Took the call, and the uh, Oregon football coach uh, was on his way home, and he said, uh, don't do what I did. He said, uh, I forgot, and I was so busy with work, and uh, he, he was like, uh, what are you doing? And I was like, we're going out to eat, and uh, he was like, I'm headed home, and I'm empty-handed. I don't know what Mario Cristobal did. I don't know if he salvaged that, that uh, Valentine's Day, but... Uh, I know that you have time to salvage uh, your Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, at the very bare minimum, you have to acknowledge its existence. Yeah, A card. I'm not somebody who advocates for, like, flowers or balloons and that stuff. You know, I always think, oh, that's for other people. But if you're uh, in a pinch, uh, do something personal. As I have told uh, a number of interns over the years who have come to me, uh, with a panicked look on their face. One time we had an intern. I am not making this up. He told me that he got his girlfriend some silk sheets for Valentine's Day. And I said, that's cool, but you're going to be the guy who gave her sheets on Valentine's Day. Maybe uh, just stop by uh, a store and buy a blank uh, notebook and uh, Maybe write a few things into the notebook that um, memories that you have in dating this person so that when she is folding her sheets years from now and going, where is that Brian who gave me those sheets? Uh, she can also say, well, he also gave me that book with all those uh, memories that he had of dating me. That's not a good idea. And then don't do what I did with Anna one year. We were like, you know what? This holiday is for everyone else. It's not for us. It's not our thing. And then... 
we agreed we're not going to celebrate. We're not going out to dinner. We're not going to do this. You know, there's going to be no flowers or chocolates or any of this other stuff that other people do. And then she came home from work. She was working at the TV station, and she had kind of a somber mood. Do you know the mood where you can tell something's not quite right, and but she's not saying it? It didn't take me very long to ascertain that the issue was she had regrets about agreeing in a handshake deal to not celebrate Valentine's Day. She wanted a card. She wanted flowers. She wanted chocolate. She wanted some sort of uh, uh, acknowledgement of Valentine's Day. And in the end, uh, uh, I was uh, sitting there at about 6 o'clock p.m. going, what do I have time to do right now? And uh, trying to scramble around. So don't be me, is what I'm saying. Because uh, subsequently I went, nope, nope, nope. You need to uh, check the box. And in fact, I was in the grocery store today, earlier today, um, and uh, I was grabbing a couple things. And I noticed as I was walking into the store that there were a line of, you know, 30-something, 40-something, 50-something, 60-something-year-old guys who were making their way out of the store with uh, a variety of things like a card or a bouquet of flowers. And uh, I'm just saying this as a public service announcement. Thank me later. I think you're in a uh, you're in a uh, a risk management situation right now if you are empty-handed. And so start thinking about the risk management. And Stephen, I know you say you don't celebrate it, but I think uh, you know um, a, a, a handwritten note from Stephen to uh, to Coach Fawn. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I know that she, like you, likes to partake in a little bit of uh, DraftKings action. A three-team parlay as a Valentine's gift is not a bad way to say, hey, I know you. And uh, that's what gift-giving is about. I uh, That's a great idea. Yeah, just make a bet for her. And then if it wins, we can go out and get some more yeah. dinner or something. Yeah, I like that. I, Here's what I've done. Hopefully she's in not looking, l- yeah. In lieu of, you know, a steak and lobster dinner. I have placed a three-team parlay on the NBA action on Valentine's Day night, and we're going to settle in with, uh, you know, uh, uh, a nice uh, evening on the couch watching a triple header of NBA basketball. We can watch our bet while we have dinner. I love it. That sounds See? like a date for myself, too. And that's what gift-giving is. Yeah, <laughs> date for you. Happy Valentine's Day to you. <laughs> um, but that's what gift-giving is. Like, people always say, like, there are some people who really struggle. And I've had, I, and I don't know why, maybe I opened myself up for this, but over the years, I have become that go-to when people are in a pinch. Like Mario Cristobal knew to call me, and I told him, I said, do something super cheesy, stop at 7-Eleven, you know, pick her up something, you know, and do it, you know, go, go way cheesy, right? You, if you got no other choice, uh, do something. Make it look like you at least, you know, you didn't forget Mario Cristobal because he's so focused on football. Um, but... I uh, I had uh, one guy who asked me, it was his girlfriend's birthday. This was Ben, an engineer that we had. And I, he asked me, is his girlfriend's birthday, what should he get her? And I said, I don't know her. I'm not dating her. I said, you have to. The gift giving is all about showing the other person, the recipient, I know you. I understand you. I get you. And, and that's what it's about. Like, it's not about, like, spending more money. It's not about doing something grand. Like a lot of people get caught up in that as, you know, gift giving goes. It really is about letting the other person know, I understand who you are. 
that's the best. Those are the best gifts. And so I often have advocated for people like, you know, sit down, go buy one of those blank notebooks that they sell at Barnes and Noble or a bookstore and sit down and print out a bunch of photos, you know, you got on your phone at Walgreens and go through and just write, hey, the, you know, I remember going to see Victor Wimbanyama's first game at Moda Center with you. I'll never forget you getting a churro and stick the picture in there. Then you go to the next page. And, you know, I'll never forget that time we uh, went on a walk and we lost our car keys and had to call an Uber to give us back home. You know, I'm just saying, don't like make me do all the work here. I'm just saying, show your significant other that you have been paying attention, that you are alert, and that you are lucid. And that's what gift giving is about in uh, 2024, by my estimation. Uh, I also... Uh, uh, I also think it's not a bad idea if you can mix some food in with it because, you know, that gets you a night out. But you don't have to be that person. I can remember a really bad Valentine's Day date that was so bad it was good that Anna and I went on. It was uh, We went to a place called Amadeus Manor that's over, I think, in Clackamas or Milwaukee, somewhere, you know, in that area. And, uh, is you know, I, I think it's now defunct. I don't think it's open anymore. But the restaurant had had an issue with open table and so apparently they didn't know how to work open table the the uh, reservation system that uh, is online and anybody who tried to make a reservation got a table so everybody crushed the restaurant at like 7 p.m. with like a hundred people and they only had room for like 25 and they had a real problem and so what they started doing is setting up kind of impromptu tables all over the restaurant because they didn't want to turn anybody away. They felt bad. But nobody really got any food. Nobody really got any service. And I had gone to the to the great lengths of having a, a, a BFT radio show listener. Uh, you know, it was named Mark Meek, who uh, ended up, um, you know, he wanted to, he was doing these uh, charity uh, offering that he would come and sing. He was kind of like a Tony Bennett slash Frank Sinatra impersonator. He would come sing on your date for a donation and the money was all going to charity and so I had hired him to come to Amadeus Manor to serenade and sing a uh, Sinatra song and uh, of course he walked into that setting where there were a hundred people in a in a restaurant built for 25 and uh, we were all kind of laughing and shaking our heads as uh, Mr. Meek serenaded uh, everybody in the room who was not being fed and I'll never forget it we finally got up and said okay we're gonna leave nobody got any food and the uh, server ran after us in the parking lot with a slice of chocolate cake on a plate saying, here, just take this. And I felt so bad for the guy because uh, it wasn't his fault that Open Table had overbooked the airplane, so to speak. All right, leave it here. Anna's going to do the 5 at 5. That's all ahead. See all kinds of weird things on social media. I don't know how much time you spend there. I spent a little time there. Try not to get, you know. Two down the rabbit hole, so to speak. But you can find me on Instagram at John Canzano and on Twitter at John Canzano BFT. I'm also on TikTok. By the way, TikTok's got some weird stuff going on. Like, you know, and my algorithm fed me uh, on the last time I was on there a, a uh, video of a couple that decided that they were going to cut the soles off of all their shoes. Steven, you like your shoes? Uh, yeah, I would not cut the soles off. So, yeah, I can't wait to hear where this goes. Yeah, they uh, they decided they liked the way their shoes looked, but they saw the benefits of being barefoot. 
And so they got all of their shoes and they took a small little uh, drill saw apparatus and uh, they very, uh, very carefully cut the bottoms off of all their shoes so that they could get the benefits of walking barefoot. And I've never understood that. Like, I have uh, sampled those shoes that are supposed to be like gloves for your feet. And it kind of weirds me out. Like, even even having socks that go around your toes kind of weirds me out. It's just not a natural thing for me. I don't know. If it's your thing, I'm not judging you. But it weirds me out. Like, I don't – I get the idea of being barefoot. Like, if I'm walking around the house or I'm at a beach or I'm on grass and, you know, we're hanging out. But I don't want to be barefoot, like, walking down the sidewalk. And this couple cut all the bottoms of their shoes off and they're, you know, spending all this time walking around like that. Like, they think – like. I don't, why not just go barefoot if you like if you want the benefits of being barefoot? I don't understand why you have to have pretend shoes on. Like just go full Barney Rubble, Fred. Like what what is the benefit of going barefoot? Maybe I just I don't I don't know. Like is there a, a ton of benefits to do that? Well, some of the uh, some of the uh, you know the uh, shoe companies that do um, you know barefoot shoes, so to speak, say that you know you can. You can, uh, you know, you want to, you want to be able to feel the earth. You want to be able to feel the ground. Some people believe that it reduces inflammation, and if you have chronic inflammation or whatever. But I just think, like, you know, oh, and they talk about balance, and they talk about pain relief. They talk about the mechanics of your hips and your knees and your core, and how, like, as humans, like, we, you know, we didn't have always have shoes. Like that was, you know, something that was invented. I don't know if you knew that, but. But my thing was, and also, like, for kids who are learning to walk, like little toddlers who are learning to walk, the the uh, pediatricians will tell you, let them learn to walk barefoot because it helps their balance. They need to feel the ground with their feet, not just be in shoes, right? So, but I, like, if I'm barefoot, I'm vulnerable. I, that's, the only, that's the only way I can put it. I've talked about my philosophy for flying, when we fly, Anna, if we're going on vacation or something, Anna's throwing on flip-flops, and I'm going, i got to have a closed-toed shoe on. And she's like, why? And I'm like, what happens if the plane goes down? And she's like, you got a bigger problem than being barefoot if the plane goes down. But I'm like, I need to be in a survival situation. What if I need to fight? I need to be able to have a closed-toed shoe on. You can't be fly- fighting in flip-flops. And she, of course, is saying, why are you fighting on a plane? I'm saying that's beside the point. Like, I don't feel prepared if I'm barefoot. That's a vulnerable position to be in, especially if you're in a public area. Like I like I've seen people go into the gym with open toed shoes and they're lifting weights. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like that is uh, that is a I'm worried about you like dropping a weight. But I'm also thinking, like, is that sanitary for you to be like in an open toed situation at a gym? Like, you know, I don't even I don't want to see that like athletes foot, whatever. Like, you know, I don't. Not my thing. But anyway, uh, this couple had cut the bottoms off the bottoms of their shoes, and they were just wearing them that way. And I'm just going, that's kind of a waste, isn't it? Like, I'm looking at it right here. Definite waste. Like, have you seen it? I'm looking at Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. watching it right now. It, it's a definite waste of everything. Like, there's no point in doing this. If, you do, if you're all about bare feet, just go barefoot. I'm with you. Like, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. I mean, I'm going to judge a little bit because I don't like feet and I don't really like toes. It grossed me out. But, um, <laughs> like, just just don't wear shoes. Like, just don't support any shoe companies and just go barefoot. Don't don't cut the bottoms off. It just seems like a waste and you're doing it for clout. 
Darlene in Salem has called in on the subject. Darlene, are you an expert on bare feet? Well, I don't know that I'm an expert, but I have done some research because I literally hate shoes. I don't okay. have a big okay. shoe collection. I wear sandals all winter long. I don't like clo- closed-in shoes. I go barefoot as much as I possibly can. And I did read an article one time. It talked about being barefoot is good for your health because you're mixing, like, getting the minerals and whatever it is from the earth when you're outside. And I I rarely get sick, like, rarely. Even everybody in my family can be sick, and I will not be sick. And I've hated shoes. My mom said when I was a toddler, they were looking for – I was – she was looking for my shoes, and I was trying to help her look. And the register on the floor register was lifted up, and she looked in there, and I had – taken the floor register off and threw my shoes down there and put it down but i was acting like i had no idea where my shoes were so So i've hated them all of my life and i've just been healthy all of my life i was gonna ask you like is it the feel of the shoes like when you were a kid you just didn't like having something on your foot i think so i just hate i literally hate shoes i don't i just don't like them i don't i'm just more comfortable without if i could go barefoot 100 percent all the time i would what do you think about the couple that cut the bottoms off their shoes to me that seems like a waste that is a waste i just wear sandals or flip-flops even in the winter do you worry that you're gonna have to fight like you that's not crossed your mind hey i'm gonna get in a fight today i'm gonna have to defend myself i better have good footwear okay so you're not weird like me person (laughs) even when i was seven i went in the next door neighbors we were playing ball i went in the next door neighbors to get the ball and i stepped on a spike nail picked up the ball went home and my mom just kind of doctored me up so i it doesn't even worry me to this day that i'm gonna step on something because i just like being barefoot i love it all right i appreciate that you called in you you helped darlene and salem added to the conversation that's what i say i need to hear from people you know like she's making a case for the for the barefoot thing and she said she wasn't an expert she sounded like an expert i will say (laughs) She's been at it for a while. Um, here's another thing. Okay. there. The, Anna and I did this one time for Valentine's Day. Okay. We're not doing it this Valentine's Day. But we went to this place called the Barefoot Sage. Okay. And it is a place where you go and they do like a foot rub. And they put your feet in wax. And they wash your feet in warm water. And I got to be honest with you. I was uncomfortable in a way that, like, I didn't know that I would be uncomfortable for the whole experience. Like, she was enjoying it. Oh, this is so awesome. I'm so relaxed. I've never been more uptight than in that situation. And not because I felt like I had to get in a fight. It was just I didn't like someone else with their hands on my feet. Like, you know, and I think I have good-looking feet, but I just didn't want that whole experience of, was it because it felt, <laughs> did it feel too good and you're like, this is too weird or you just didn't like it, like it didn't feel good? I'm not so sure how I feel anymore. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. The lady came in and it was like very tranquil and spa-like. So it wasn't like Aaron Rodgers, you know, being locked in a sensory deprivation area. But now, it there was you like go, the darkness retreat with a yeah. foot rub at the same time. <laughs> it was, it was just a little off-putting. And then, you know, I was doing it mostly because I was, and I was like, this is a cool thing. Let's do it. Let's try it. It was th- it was uh, it was Valentine's Day. Uh, it might have been two years ago, Valentine's Day. But it we go in, and they have like these really cool couches you sit in, 
The lighting is dim. It's kind of mood. It's got a good mood in there, good vibe. Like I could take a nap in there. And uh, and there's a lot of like beads and curtains hanging. And then they very uh, quietly in a soft spa-like voice come in. And uh, they talk to you about the treatment they're going to do. And they start by like bringing this big, hot, steaming hot bucket of water right to your feet. And they have you soak your feet in it. When that's cool, like nobody was touching me at that point. I'm happy there. They serve you a beverage, put you in a, you know, a good state of mind. And uh, then uh, they begin to do the treatments. And like one of them was like, they're going to dip your feet in hot wax. Well, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll roll with it. But, uh, you know, wouldn't be something that was on my bucket list. And, and then what you don't think about is there has to be another person. There has to be somebody there who guides your feet into the wax. And somebody there who's like, and, and you know, I'm a little bit ticklish, like in the foot area. And, uh, you know, I was like squirming around a little bit while the person was trying to get my foot into the wax. And she was fine. It wasn't her fault. It was more about me than anything else. But at the end of it, Anna was like, that was awesome. What a great experience. That felt so good. And I was just like, I'm so happy that's over. Like, and, I, and we ran, here's the other thing that we ran into friends while we were there. We weren't the only ones there. And I, we ran into another couple that we knew. So we had, we had the same idea. So uh, there was that as well. But uh, it wasn't for me. It wasn't necessarily like a for me experience. Maybe you do it for Valentine's Day. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know. They've got openings or whatever. But just go, like, and the other thing, too, is I grew up, as I say, a little rural, okay? We had animals. And for me, like, in my parents' backyard, you know, I, I couldn't see another house for, like, there was no visibility to see another house. Like, it was just trees and mountains and hills and stickers and rocks. And, I, you know, I wasn't out there trying to walk around barefoot. Like, you know, you learn pretty quickly you need something under your feet if you tried to do that out there. But anyway, that's just how I grew up. All right, Anna's popping into the studio. Hopefully she's got her footwear on. She'll be joining us. we got hour number three still ahead. Jerry Palm, CBS Sports, will be with us to talk about the NCAA tournament. The bracketology is on, and Palm is the guy when it comes to your bracket. Uh, for, for those of you who uh, listened on yesterday's show, we had Reagan Beers on the show, the Oregon State women's basketball player. She was fantastic, talking about her family. And the Beavers are ranked number 11 in the women's AP Top 25 poll. They're on their way. And uh, the Portland Regional and Oregon State, who knows? So we'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. All right, happy hour still ahead. I hope you stayed with me through the talk and the discussion about bare feet. If you did, you will be rewarded with an hour of happy radio ahead. I'm not anti-feet, okay? I'm just saying. For me, I prefer in a public setting to have footwear on. Like, I'm not going to go into the gym and have open-toed shoes on. It makes sense. I'm not going to ride a bicycle with flip-flops on. I'm going to have shoes on. That's how I roll. You can do you. I'm okay with that. I'm sure there's advantages. To being barefoot is uh, the caller who called in. Darlene in Salem called in, advocating for feet everywhere. Not against feet. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna has footwear on today. Thank you for wearing shoes into the studio. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. I don't normal. I don't think I've ever come in here barefoot before. No, but you wear flip-flops in the uh, spring and summer. I actually don't wear a flip-flop. 
I don't like flip flops. What do you wear? Slide. A slide. A what is the difference? What's I, the difference? I, I don't like that feeling of whatever it is that goes between your big toe and your second toe. What's that second toe called? The second toe. Oh. I don't know. Doesn't have a name. The, it's like the pointer toe. It's the pointer toe. That's the one used to point for going somewhere. Yeah. You just take your shoe and your sock off, and you say, "Right over yeah, there." Yeah, right over there. Yeah. Or if the if you need the attention of the server in the restaurant. I've noticed you take your shoe and sock off, you uh-huh. lift your foot up, and yeah. you kind of give a come yeah. hither yeah, I'll with do that, that second toe. Tomorrow night at dinner, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure, I mean, you're either a flip-flop person or you're not, and I'm just not. I use that term interchangeably. Oh. Flip-flop, Well, you slide, really shouldn't. You know. Because there's a huge difference. If I can see your toes, you're wearing a flip-flop. <laughs> All right, let's go to Dave, who's on I-5. He's got something to add to the conversation. Dave, go ahead. So anyway, I'm 61, had a lot of foot problems, knee problems, hip pain, on walking on concrete all day long, you know, 10 hours a day or whatever. Uh, so I was having massive pain, you know, tried to arch supports, extra cushion, all that stuff. Came across the uh, uh, a barefoot running video and just started researching it, decided to try it changed my life two years i've been almost two years it'll be two years in may i've been barefoot shoe strictly now so but uh, you wear a barefoot shoe it's a so, barefoot shoe now it is a shoe but it's yeah. a very uh there's no heel so there's it's what they call a zero drop there's no elevation between your toes and your heel you're you're actually walking you know like like your barefoot natural yeah. posture is what they call it mm-hmm. so you were talking about the baby you know learning how to walk so they learn how to walk next thing you do what do you do you put shoes on what do they got to do they got to learn how to walk again yeah because they're they're wearing that heel of little white booties you know most people yep. put on and that's why uh, they fall so yep. i don't know why you why we've always put heels under our or a little wedge under our heels but you know i walked that way for 50 years and i think I, if i would have found out about barefoot shoes earlier i think i would have been a lot better but like I say, my my knee pain has gone away quite a bit. Uh, it strengthens your feet. You feel a lot more stable. You're low to the ground. You know, you're you're you feel agile. Are you faster uh, bare in barefoot shoes than normal shoes? Am I shoes? faster? I'm sixty. And I'm fat. <laughs> I'm not too fast. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get your forty time. You know, try it with and without. But, uh, you know, I walk dogs, walk my dog in the evening, and I feel much better. For a while there, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. I was my hurting so for bad. You. I'd, I'd, I'd drive to work and feel like, gosh, can I can I make it through another day, you know? Yeah. So, well, here's the thing. Do what works for you, right? I mean, yeah, that, if, that, yeah. if that's working yeah. for you, good for you. I'm not telling anybody else what to do. I'm just saying, for me, personally, I'm not walking around barefoot out there. And... The barefoot shoes I've seen, the Vibram five finger shoes that I used to wear like, yeah. back in the day. You like, got some of those. I, I got a pair of those because I thought, oh, okay, it'd be cool. But I didn't like even putting them on, like slipping my feet into them. You didn't like the separation of your toes? I like my toes to hang out together. Some people really enjoy the separation of the toes. I, I like <laughs> my toes are very social. Animals. They're they gonna like li- company. They're going to live a long time. <laughs> you know, they have good relationships. 
They tend to run in a pack of five or so. You're anti-segregation when it comes to toes. I like, uh, (laughs) I'm all about inclusion. Okay. Oh, this so. whole conversation is just gross. Do you remember when we you went to this. the? No, but do you remember we went to the Barefoot Sage? Yeah. You got the foot massage. We soaked. Uh, we went yeah. to the wax thing. You rather enjoyed that experience. I did, which is weird because I, I also I'm just not a foot person in general. I'm. I'm you just were not, that day. I was that day. You they were converted a, me. You were a. Uh, I don't want to say you were a podiatrist because that's a foot doctor. You did not become a foot doctor by soaking your feet. No. But, um, you know, if any, by the way, in Asian countries, like in China. Oh, I can't wait to hear where <laughs> this is going. <laughs> I can say this because I, I married you. Really? Uh, in Asian countries, like in China, I was there for the Beijing Olympics. The okay. businessmen, yes. at the end of a long day, go and get a foot rub. Yeah. And they all put their feet into this cauldron that is you know, this cauldron, and don't ask me how I know this, because I went to the place. Um, and <laughs> For the I, record, I was with you, yeah. and it was just a foot massage. <laughs> <laughs> and I left, I left that place in a good mood, you know? Yeah. But I've got to say, I didn't understand, like, why all the businessmen in China, and it just seemed to be like a business social kind of end of the day, <laughs> let's conduct some business, close a deal type activity like are we missing out in america that we're not all soaking our feet together well i mean they do have a few thousand years of like medicinal kind of reflexology research on us so they've probably figured something out when it comes to feet and the rest of your body and you know it felt social to me and also kind of gross (laughs) you know (laughs) like Let's all put our feet into the same kind of gross. But why are we all doing it here in America? It was a, like a hot tub, but because it was kind of a group thing. Yeah, it was one cauldron. Yeah. Ooh, and it's like communal. Right? It was like you know, I don't know who you saw today. Like if you're out there listening, think about your day. Whoever you hung out with today. Okay, <laughs> I had uh, I had coffee with an athletic director. <laughs> uh, I had coffee with a couple of marketing people at at, at the radio station. Yeah. Um, I saw you during the middle of the day. Uh-huh. It'd be like if the AD and the marketing people, you and me, and yeah. you know Charlie, who I saw at the grocery store, who's the checker. Yeah, we all put our feet into the same cauldron. Right. That would gross me out. Yeah. I don't know where your feet have been. No. Yeah, I'm not interested in sharing foot water with really anyone. Anyone. And how? And you don't know if they're changing the water out. <sighs> oh boy. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like it's it's a little problematic and potentially tricky <laughs> all right let's get to the uh reason that you have walked into the studio walked with shoes on I see what you the did five there. at five here we go the five at five all this foot talk number one i don't quite know where to start so i'm just going to start with criminal stuff uh remember that jackie robinson statue oh, yeah that was stolen Got a lot of headlines. Forty-five-year-old yep. man now in police custody. Cops say he stole and destroyed that statue in Kansas. However, authorities don't believe his actions were motivated by hate. He's been hit with four criminal charges, Ricky <coughs> Alderetti, including felony theft and aggravated criminal damage to property. He nabbed that monument from outside a youth baseball facility late last month. 
and burnt it down to a pile of rubble. Was he trying to melt it? Did he think he was going to get the copper out of it? They believe that he committed the act to cash in on the figurine's metal scraps. And they do believe, I mean, that's a pretty big feat for one person. They believe there may be more people involved in the crime. That statue was a $75,000 statue. To go fund me by the local league that uses that field raised $300,000. They can get a bigger statue of Jackie Robinson. This is actually a good thing. And this guy, this Yahoo, I'm glad he's in uh, custody. Nobody should be doing that to a statue of Jackie Robinson. I don't care if you're trying to get the scrap metal or not. Number two. All right, let's talk about Tiger Woods. Uh, We all noticed, I think, when he ended his longtime sponsorship with Nike earlier this year. So he's going over to TaylorMade, but he's taking with him the color red. So uh, he released a whole new active premium lifestyle brand called Sunday Red, three words, uh, in conjunction with golf equipment. Uh, Taylor Maine. He says, it's the right time in my life. It's transitional. I'm no longer a kid. Life changes. I have kids now. <laughs> this is a product and brand I'm proud of. So there you go. You can still buy Tiger stuff. It's just going to be made by Taylor Maine now. So there's hoodies, polos, outerwear, and hats. Taylor Maine, this is good for them. Okay, this is good for them because this brand is going to become its own business unit. Just like, you know, brand Jordan is at Nike. All right, so it'll have its own thing. It'll have its own headquarters, its own designers, its own staff. This is great for TaylorMade, and you know this is a real partnership. And and uh, Tiger Woods, you know, being part of it is good for TaylorMade and and that company. But I don't know how good this is for Tiger. And he's saying it's the right time. It's the right time because his Nike deal is up, right? It's over. It's up, and the sun is kind of set on that deal. And I just, I don't. Love this for Tiger. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. But this is going to be like lifestyle clothing that goes beyond the golf course. Yeah. Athleisure for... for... Athleisure? Come on. (laughs) For Tiger? Like, he's a killer. I just think, does he need the money? No. Does he need the exposure? I don't think so. I don't know. I'd love to know the backstory. Like, what, you know, like the the backstory and how the thing with Nike ended and why there wasn't just a re-up well he'd he'd been playing with tailor-made clubs since 2017 he signed a deal with them for the clubs but the deal did not include apparel because he was nike until earlier this year he parted ways with nike so he's without an endorsement he's been wearing foot joy golf shoes since returning to competition he's not barefoot he's been wearing <laughs> foot joy <laughs> Tiger Woods should come out and be like, I'm going barefoot. Nike would be like, no! You know? Tiger Wood and Vibrams. But I, I also found it interesting. Like, he's going to start wearing his Sunday red apparel this week yeah. at the Riviera Country Club for the, you know, second event of the PGA Tour season. And, um, you know, I think it was correlated. Tiger coming out, Tiger, you know, on social media saying he's ready to play again in the launch of this Sunday red. Sunday. Sun day. Not Sunday. Red. But 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 that was his thing. He would always wear red on Sundays because it was his victory shirt. And now it's going to be a sun day red. <laughs> Do I have to 
say that? Like when somebody says, where's that shirt? You yeah. like it? I'm like, that's my son. Pause. Day red shirt. <laughs> Are you okay? Uh... Yes, I am okay. I am wearing sun day red. Number three. All right, the Oakland A's making history, naming Jenny Kavnar the first female play-by-play announcer in Major League Baseball history. She describes it as a dream come true. She says, growing up the daughter of a baseball coach, she's loved the game from a young age, along with the stories, the history, the relationships. She's starting her 18th season as a Major League broadcaster, and uh, they'll be sharing their experiences with the loyal fans of the athletics as they go on this ride together. And what a ride it will be. She had previously been the backup play-by-play announcer for the Colorado Rockies. She has also served as a pregame host, postgame host, and reporter for the team. Yeah, this is um, a, a big departure from the Oakland A's days with Bill King on radio. And, uh, you know, she is, it's historic. I think it's great. I also, I love her signature call. She says, uh, uh, she gone when there's a home run hit, you know. (laughs) And uh, I like that. But I also think, like, the story for the A's this season is the same as it has been for the last couple of seasons with John Fisher and this team and the mess that is going on behind the scenes. Now the city of Oakland and the A's are talking Again, about whether or not the A's could play at the Coliseum next year or beyond or what what they're going to do in the next couple of seasons. So if I'm the city of Oakland, I tell the A's, uh, you know, I thought you were going to Vegas. Don't come crawling back here. Uh, they're going to have conversations there. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to be graded because I just don't know. I don't think this is the story for the A's. This is a really – this is a feel-good story for a franchise that – doesn't have a lot to feel good about. So I think it's a tough spot for her to be in. Number four. All right. Let's talk about uh, the Kansas City Royals. They have released renderings of their proposed new ballpark in the Crossroads District of Kansas City. And I just find this fascinating. Like, first of all, the renderings are beautiful. Second of all, I find the timing of it great because the city is just riding high on the Super Bowl win. Yep. So, of course, baseball team is going to go, hey, let's let's talk about the new stadium. I mean, it's great timing. Well, great timing for them. They're trying to seize on the enthusiasm. They held a news conference today in Kansas City uh, announcing where the ballpark would go. Um, they're uh, They're trying to get nearby to the Power and Light District in Kansas City, if you've ever been there. But it's a $200 million ballpark. It'll uh, it'll be right there by Interstate 670. Now, they're trying to find support from voters in Jackson County to fund the project. They want to secure a 40-year sales tax that would uh, also, get this, send 50% of the tax revenue to the Kansas City Chiefs for a renovated Arrowhead Stadium. So they're not just, like, siphoning off some of the enthusiasm from the Chiefs. They're literally pairing this project with the Chiefs. And when you go to KansasCity.com, the website for uh, the Kansas City news outlet, the Kansas City Star, 
there's a banner that says Chiefs win across the top, <laughs> and then Royals set to announce stadium plans. And the plan includes sales tax for Jackson County that would uh, combine a renovation of Arrowhead Stadium and the new uh, the new uh, stadium for the baseball team. You know, they've got big plans, basically. Yeah, and they're using Patrick Mahomes' fuel to uh, to get it done. What are we on four? Yep. Number four. Giddy up. All right, let's finish with uh, the Celtics. Jason Tatum. I just think this is a cool story. He <clears throat> is going to help low-income families buy homes in his hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. So he's collaborating with SoFi, which is a finance company, and <clears throat> they made a million-dollar donation to his charity foundation, and he'll be using the funds to assist home buyers from low-income single-parent families with a down payment on a house. He's getting a lot of press about this. Um, you know, he's talking about his own story, uh, born out of his life, being raised by a single mother, saying that, you know, we didn't know about investments or savings accounts when he was growing up. But then when he got to the NBA and started to make money, they had to ask questions and learn about things. And it was always important to him, even when he was younger, to give back and help people that looked like him and grew up like him. I think it's really cool that he has found something outside of basketball that is fueling him and, and speaks to him. And SoFi is going to contribute funds over the next three to five years. And the foundation will determine uh, how the participants are picked. By the way, they're not required to take out a mortgage through SoFi. So everybody will have access to this. But he's using, you know, the All-Star Game, Eastern Conference. will be on the Eastern Conference team on Sunday to kind of be the, the catalyst for this. So he's got good PR people. SoFi's got some good PR people, apparently. And, you know, he's talking about his mother was 19 years old when she had him. And was a single mother, and he's saying, hey, "I want to help people that were like me." Seems excited about this. If, you know, I, I want to believe he's genuine about it, and so good for him for for finding a passion outside of basketball. You know, I this think that's great. Should be a bigger story. Washington Post picked it up. I'm glad they did. Number five. I thought that was number five. That was four. That I was asked four? you if it was four. <laughs> Maybe it was five. <laughs> Was it five? Is anyone keeping score? I, I know that I, I signaled number four. I asked you if it was number four. Are you under the weather? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell? Um, okay. Well, Do you have a sixth story just in case that, that was five? Of course. Let's I count always, them. Let's I count them stories. Extras. Okay. The, what was your number one story? <laughs> well, I had Tiger. Tiger. I don't know in the, what order. I had Tiger. You had the statue of Jackie Robinson. Statue. You had Jason Tatum. You had the A's. Yeah. What are we missing? I got four. No, I guess you're right. You know, what I was going to talk about was the Athletics talking to Oakland about continuing their lease, but you kind of mentioned that. So I'm going to end with a different one, and, and sadly, it's, it's, it is Oh, you had the broadcaster. One. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that was one of them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're, 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 we're good here. This is we're number five. Here. This is number five. That's what okay. I get. So marathon, this is awful. Marathon world record holder oh, Kelvin this. Kipton. He's yeah. just 24. He was set to be a superstar of long distance running. He was a top contender for gold at the Olympics in Paris this year. 
He was in a car crash in Kenya, and he was killed along with his coach. Now, their vehicle was the only one that was involved in the crash over the weekend. Kempton reportedly was driving when it veered off a road and into a ditch before hitting a tree. He genuinely was one of the most exciting prospects to emerge in road running in years, having broken the world record in only his third appearance in an elite marathon. His record, which was set at last year's Chicago Marathon, was ratified by the Federation World Athletics just last week. He, he ran it. He ran a marathon in about two hours. That's insane. Two hours, I think, thirty-five seconds. And um, that he's not the first Kenyan runner to die in a road accident. David Lalay, uh, who was the silver medalist at the All Africa Games, died in a car crash in ten, 2010. Um, Francis Kipilagat was among five people killed in a crash in 2018. And Nicholas Bett, who won the 400-meter hurdles in the, the World Championships in 2015, also died in a car crash in 2018. Um, I'm getting the impression that the roads there are not very safe. It's just a reminder. I mean, these, you know, these runners overcome so much to rise to the upper echelons of running and to be in contention for winning gold medal in the Olympics. But I don't know. It's just, it's terribly sad. Oh, just 24 years old. Yeah. It, and I've, you know, cover, in covering five Olympics, I've gone to track and field and interviewed East African runners in distance running a number of times. What do they tell you? They, um, you get very quickly the picture as you talk about their history, their family, their upbringing, that they are dealing with adversity that American runners are not dealing with at an early age. And it's literally no exaggeration. And, and Alberto Salazar, who is controversial for his own reasons and his own doing, you know, he talked about training his American distance runners to compete and taking them out in into the wilderness with no supplies, nothing and saying this is what your competition dealt with in their upbringing, and that you know they are, uh, I guess, more qualified to deal with adversity and pain and unfortunate circumstances. Uh, may he rest in peace, Kelvin Kiptum. Well, if this accident happened in western Kenya, in a town called Kabsabet, apparently it's a high altitude region that's renowned as a training base for the best distance runners from Kenya and from across the world. Yeah, it's tough. Sad, sad story. Jerry Palm, CBS Sports is coming up. We're going to talk about the NCAA tournament bracket. Leave it here. Well, I got a question in the Monday mailbag from a Washington state fan who's very frustrated over where Washington state was ranked in the, Latest AP poll, or not ranked, frankly, they're in the also-receiving-votes category. Washington State uh, has played very well. Has, I think, four quad one wins, three of them on the road. What gives? Well, I reached out to Jerry Palm, the resident bracketologist at CBS Sports, as I always do when it comes to such questions, and I'm bringing Jerry Palm on the show now. How are you, my friend? Where are you today? I'm at home. So, Northwest Indiana. From basket, the heartland of America when it comes to basketball. Yeah. When you look out an your window, do you... From yeah. the best team in the country. 
when you yeah, Purdue. So but when you so look fun. out the window, do you see barns and kids shooting baskets? No, nah, I'm suburban Chicago. So um, kids shooting baskets, yes. Barns, nah, not so much in this part of the world. Jerry Palm, help me with that question. Uh, Washington State, very well coached, playing great. You know, why aren't they getting as much respect in the polls? I noticed you have them on your bracket, but why aren't they getting yeah. respect from voters? Um, you know, I don't ask me to explain voters. Uh, did voters are – you're asking me to explain voters. They're just – you know, they, they probably haven't got, like, the big flash win recently enough to get their attention. So, you know, it's uh, – the, the nice thing, though, if you're a Washington State fan – the voters have no bearing whatsoever on whether or not Washington State's going to get in the tournament or where they're seated. The polls are not at all criteria. So just treat them as entertainment value, and because that's really all they're worth. Um, what's much more important is uh, you were talking about their four quad one wins, you know, three of them away from home. Uh, you know, th- things like that are important. I, voters don't care about stuff like that. They're just measuring basically winning streaks. Um, so, uh, Washington state's in pretty decent shape. Um, they have, uh, the loss to Santa Clara. It's a quad three loss. It's, they're not horrible. Um, but they're, it's not a great loss. Um, you know, that, but they, they've done reasonably well. I mean, this is a, a resume that's good enough to be in the bracket at the moment. Um, they've got a reasonably favorable schedule with five home games left out of seven, all of them winnable games in fact really must wins because not necessarily you have to win it just to make the tournament but those are the home games that they have left losses to those teams at home will hurt you know those are going to be uh quad two or three losses and then you get the arizona road trip uh arizona state also a a team that can hurt you but it's, it's a little more forgivable if you lose to them on the road uh and then you get another shot at arizona where you can really get the voters' attention if that's what you want, but get the committee's attention. That's, that's what's really important. The Pac-12, you know, hasn't had a great season when it comes to, you know, teams that you consider tournament teams. And, in fact, right now, I was reading uh, your latest post, you don't have them with a team that is a lock yet to uh, to oh, be there. Yeah, I mean, you know, Arizona, yes, we all expect that they will. But, the, but you know, when you look at the conference, how many teams do you expect the Pac-12 – What's the high? What's the low you could see getting in? I, I'm going to have I have a hard time seeing that's five if everything really went well. Um, and then you're talking about Utah, Colorado, Washington State, and Oregon uh, all finding their way in. Um, I think that three or four is more likely. I kind of like four. I think, you know, I, I like Washington State to get in. Um, I, I like Colorado and Utah to get in. I'm not as sure about Oregon, um, but I, I, you know, Washington State's probably in the best shape of the four of them at the moment, um, and playing the best ball of the four of them at the moment. Uh, can't really rule out Washington. If Washington got hot, they, they'd have an outside shot. But they just have to. They really have to get hot. Time's starting to run out on them. And I, and I started, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago thinking about the Pac-12 tournament being really wide open. Um, in your estimation, as far as the conference goes, what should people be rooting for? If you're rooting for the conference to have a good showing, 
you know, is it somebody like Oregon winning that that tournament? Would that be a best case scenario to get mo- an extra team in? Maybe uh, it doesn't wouldn't necessarily have to be Oregon. Um, it could be anybody because you know the winner's an automatic qualifier, so it could be Stanford. You know, just to pull a name out of a hat, and uh, if they win the tournament, then you know. Uh, the, the only bad thing about something like that is they may take someone out along the way. Um, but Arizona winning the tournament doesn't really help the league much. So it would be better if almost anybody else won the tournament. Jerry Palm with us, bracketology expert, CBS Sports. Um, you, you're real close to Purdue. They have been on top or near the top of the rankings for uh, a good portion of the season. What do you see when you see Purdue, and and how good is that team compared to maybe a year ago? Yeah, they're well. First of all, last year they were playing with freshman guards, and those guys are sophomores now, so they're bigger, they're stronger, um, they're smarter, uh, and it's you know it's the, the jump from freshman to sophomore is the biggest jump uh, in college basketball in terms of development, and so these guys are. Um, Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer uh, are much improved over last year. But the the real big thing that they did is they got Lance Jones from Southern Illinois. Uh, They got him because he was a really good defensive player, and he turned out to be an offensive spark plug as well. And uh, so now Purdue's starting three guards around Zach Eady and, uh, and oddly enough, two post players, um, Zach and Trey Kaufman-Wren. But uh, they – Lance Jones has given them another dimension that they haven't had. He's really fast on the perimeter. He's a good on-ball defender. Uh, he can shoot the three. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's been a real spark plug, and he's brought a lot of positive energy. This is a guy who really likes playing for Purdue, and that that's infectious throughout the team. So um, he's probably the biggest difference between last year and this year is what he has brought in terms of energy and effectiveness to the to the Purdue lineup. Jerry, you you make a living sort of predicting the bracket and doing a really good job of it. But what are the what are the committee members looking at when they're selecting teams and when they're seeding teams? What are they using yeah. to evaluate those teams? Well the the team sheets, you know, have the quadrants. I mean we talked about quadrants, right? So quadrant one is your hardest games and it's based on the net ranking of your opponent and where the game was home road or neutral and then quadrant two is the next group of hardest games and quadrant three and quadrant four so um so that gives them it just gives them a way to organize a team schedule in a way that makes it easy for them to sort of see you know let's see who the best teams they played are now i know where to look um but you know it's not they don't sit there and discuss quadrant records very much because not all quad one wins and losses are the same. Um, you can have a quad two win that is better than one of your quad one wins because of the quality of the team you played, even though you may have played them at home. So anyways, the, the committee's basically answering four questions. Who did you play? Where did you play them? Who did you beat? And who beat you? That, that's how they evaluate these teams. So it's subjective. They've got all this objective data uh, that helps them do that. But those are the questions they're trying to answer. And the question that's missing there is, how much did you win or lose by? What was the margin of victory? They don't care about that. But the net ranking that they created cares a lot about margin of victory. It's heavily margin of victory influenced. Uh, some of the other well-known metrics by Ken Palm 
heavily margin of influence of victory influence because it's actually trying to predict margin of victory, which the net is not. But um, so those, a lot of people fall in love with those rankings and expect that those rankings, you know, are really important in terms of selection and seeding, and they're not. The net is used strictly to put teams in buckets. Your opponent's net rankings are more important than your own. So um, Anyways, so the metrics are, are, they're not nothing, but if that's all you have, you don't have anything. Um, so really it's, you know, your strength of schedule, the quality of the teams you beat. They want to see that you can beat tournament quality opposition off your home floor, ideally. Uh, that's kind of what, one of the things holding New Mexico back. Um, so it's, it's really, it's just a subjective thing. You know, you've got 10 or 11 committee members, and, you know, they all have their own opinions. Um, and some of the data points mean more to one committee member than another, but essentially, you know, they want teams that have played good schedules and have done well against good schedules and have done well against good teams and have done so off their home floor. I am thinking back to 2017. NCAA is talking about replacing RPI. Yep. What went, what went in into that? Yeah, you were in that meeting. Okay, so tell who yep. else is in that meeting? How does that go? So. So this is just the initial meeting when they first started um, talking about it. Um, the, uh, Dan Gavitt, who's uh, in charge of it, the uh, basketball for the NCAA for the tournament, um, one of the committee members, um, Jeff Sagarin, the, the rankings guy, Ken Pomeroy is there, uh, Kevin Paga, who uh, his rankings are on the team sheet as well. His is a non-margin of victory ranking. Um, the ESPN stats guy was there. Uh, Mike DeCourcy was there as a writer uh, who's now doing brackets. I don't think he was then. Um, and, uh, and some other NCAA staffer. Anyway, they, they, the NCAA was, wanted some input as to, to what kinds of things that they should consider doing or not doing. Um, it, the, the thing that I remember most about that meeting uh, that I'm willing to say on the air is Ken Pomeroy uh, – <laughs> whose rankings, you know, like I said, are heavily influenced on margin of victory, don't really consider, like, the, the concept of a win doesn't really mean anything to him. Um, but, obviously, if you're doing margin of victory, you you know who won, but you don't get extra credit for having a win. You just, it's all about the margin. Um, anyways, he, uh, after the uh, committee member and, and Dan Gavin are tell, talking about the kinds of things that they're looking to to have, you know, the qualities they look for at NCAA tournament teams, he says, you should not be using my rankings. I'm not measuring what you're trying to reward. Hmm. And first of all, good on him for saying so. Um, I, I, I've always believed that's true, but he also, you know, he just flat out said, I'm not measuring what you're trying to reward. You shouldn't be using my rankings. Everybody uses his rankings. You have a hard time finding people to talk about teams without mentioning their Ken Palm ranking or their net ranking, which practically mirrors Ken Palm's rankings, um, correlates very strongly statistically uh, to Ken Palm's rankings. Anyways, um, and so, you know, they don't really have a lot of influence, but in the, in the public eye, they do. And so I get a lot of questions about my practice like well you know our net ranking is this and our 10 palm ranking is that why aren't we higher well because those aren't really big factors in in what they're trying to do that you know you talk about you know setting your ego aside ken pomeroy could have been like you know hey yeah. i'm kind of a big deal 
Let's use yeah. my let's use my formula, and instead he's going. Uh, you guys aren't after what I'm measuring, and yeah. So but, yeah, yes, and and you know that's the thing about math guys generally. I mean, they have. I mean, generally they feel very strongly about the system they've created, right? But they also understand that you know what they're best at and what they're not. And if you're honest at all. You know, and, and a lot of them are. You're, most of them would say the same thing. If that's if that if they were in that position, they would say the same thing. You know, that's that's kind of the you know I guess, I guess kind of the math geek thing, and I'm a math geek too. You know that you just you would just flat tell people, look, I can't help you right now. You know, this is not something that's going to be helpful to you. You shouldn't use it. And that's I, that it, it didn't surprise me. Once he said it, uh, that he did say it, um, it's, it's just, uh, I, I would have certainly believed he would have thought it. Jerry Palm with us, CBS Sports Bracketology expert. Back in the day, Jerry, you uh, you sort of uh, invented and operated collegerpi.com, collegebcs.com. You know, you eventually transition and go to work for CBS Sports. You leave your your normal uh, nine-to-five job and find your way. That was all a hobby, right? Like, you got your start because what? You were interested in college basketball and college football. So my degree is computer science. I'm a math guy. Um, But in 94, I had a new computer, new database software. Uh, Al Gore just invented the Internet, so we had access to some stuff. And um, they had just changed the formula for the RPI. So I had known of the RPI, um, but I didn't really know that much about it. So now I've got the formula, and I thought, well, so this gives me a chance to teach myself this new technology, right? I create a database, and I, I you know, get all these scores and stuff, and I run calculations, and I do the RPI. And I thought, well, I wonder if anybody else is interested in this. So I shared it on news groups um, with the caveman writing on the wall version of message boards now, and um, people were interested. I never thought anybody would be. And within a couple of years, the thing blew up. You know, I don't know if you know Dave Jones at Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, but he was the first media guy to find me. And he told two friends, they told two friends, and pretty soon everybody who covered college basketball knew who I was, and I wasn't really doing anything but answering the phone. Um, so <laughs> and making and, you know, making my, my little predictions available, and, uh, and the whole thing blew up, and uh, – you know, the next thing you know, uh, ten or fifteen years later, I'm uh, I'm working for CBS, and so this will be my thirty-first year of doing brackets. So when you um, so make that's, yeah, when you make the jump, you make the jump from doing college basketball, college RPI, to doing the BCS. It's just numbers, right? Like it was just it was, it, it was easy. Yeah, yeah, because I I had all of the 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 basics that I needed to do that. I just had to. I just had to, you know, reprogram and collect different data, but that part was easy. I didn't have to set up <clears throat> databases of schools and things like that. I already had the, I already had the, you know, the bones for it. I just had to put a little different kind of meat on them. And they tried to sell us in the day that the BCS was the best system. Was it? It was better than what we had, um, marginally. <laughs> yeah, marginally. I think. Better. I think what I think what we're gonna have next is probably the best that we can reasonably expect for major college football. Um, we're not going to leave out undefeated teams anymore. Um, so if you, if you've won all your games 
you're going to get a shot at something unless we have, I suppose, two non-major undefeated teams, and that could be a problem. But Florida right. State's not getting left out of the new system, you know. Along those lines, how do you expect schools will schedule non-conference games with the expanded playoff? Um, I I suspect that we, you know, the TV influences some of that. Um, I think more so than in college basketball because you have so few non-conference games in, in football. Um, you'll have TV specials in basketball, too, but it's, you know, one or two games out of, you know, a dozen you might play that are non-conference games. But when you only have three or maybe four non-conference games and TV's taken one of yours to schedule a really good game for you, then that has a bigger impact. But I think for the most part, you know, the teams that think that they can make the playoff are going to try and schedule as many winnable games as they can and then take TV money once a year maybe for, for another one. Jerry Palm, you're the best. I'm glad they put you in that room. Find his work uh, online at CBS Sports. He is the expert. We'll get you back on closer to the tournament. But Thank you, man. Fascinating conversation. All right. Thank you. There he is in Indiana where kids are shooting baskets as we speak. Some parting thoughts coming up. Big brouhaha in Louisiana. We're the Louisiana Lafayette, the Ragin' Cajuns. We're playing Cal in softball on Friday. And uh, I don't know if you you caught this, uh, this story, but, um, you know, it was a uh, three-day, three-game series between Cal in softball in Louisiana Lafayette, formerly southwestern Louisiana State, but now... Louisiana Lafayette, Ragin' Cajuns. Uh, six Cal players in softball took a knee during the national anthem. This did not go over well with the crowd in uh, Louisiana. Um, people were shouting at them and jeering at them, and uh, members of the uh, Cal softball team uh, got, you know, six members got down on a knee and a um, bunch of booing and just some bad feelings. Um, Cal got no hit in the opening game. And then during the second game, Cal won 3-1 to one in extra innings. And then the third game of the set took place on Monday of this week. And Cal was ahead one nothing in the seventh inning when rain started to fall. There's already bad feelings in this game. Rain starts to fall. Louisiana Lafayette has a runner at first base. Cal's pitcher is struggling. Randy Rowling is struggling to uh, throw strikes. It's raining. She's complaining that the ball's wet. Her coach is coming out, arguing with the umpires. Uh, fans in the stands already have bad feelings or jeering at Cal. Um, Cal's pitcher throws a wild pitch on the next pitch. Runner goes to second. Coach comes out, argues with the umpire some more, says we shouldn't be playing. The umpire gets a dry ball. Uh, tells the pitcher to keep it in her glove until she's ready to throw. She, of course, throws a wild pitch again. Runner on third in a one nothing game in the seventh inning. Rain still falling. Arguing with the umpire continues. Uh, then uh, another wild pitch brings home the tying run. Uh, Bears assistant coach comes storming out of the dugout, arguing with the umpire, gets tossed out. Uh, now there is some altercation between players at Louisiana and Cal, arguing. There's helmet throwing. Um, this is like right out of minor league baseball's greatest hits. 
uh, as Cal and Louisiana are talking about a wildly toxic three-game series that ended with uh, Louisiana Lafayette winning that third game and uh, three-to-one score. But uh, there you go. little drama in the softball world. little drama there. Cal headed to the ACC to play softball where they'll see uh, other opponents on the eastern part of the United States probably won't be returning to Louisiana. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.